It's time for the Night Shift with Jack Johnson on Sports Radio 810 WHB. It's getting near dawn. So we actually do have a show this week, even though it wasn't on Tuesday. We've got a Thursday night edition of the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside producer Kyle Collier. And it's a good thing that we have a show this week because we'll be previewing the biggest game and the biggest matchup of the weekend, of course, to people here in Kansas City. Chiefs and Bills Sunday night at 5.30. But I would say to the average NFL fan, this is the game. This is the game, and you know that it's the game. It's this new school Manning-Brady rivalry. And there may be some people that talk you off the ledge of, of joining the bandwagon of this rivalry of, oh, it's not really a rivalry because Mahomes has won both the playoff games. It is a rivalry. You know, I think there are two legitimate rivals, and I'm not going to shock anybody by saying this. It's the Bengals and the Bills. But I do think the Bills rivalry is more about competitiveness. I think it's about two fan bases that were tortured for a long time getting good at the same time, uh, two transcendent quarterbacks. I, th- I think it's a lot of respect on both sides. You may not like Bills fans or like Josh Allen or like the Bills, but I can tell you this, that there's a level of respect. As for the Bengals and Chiefs rivalry, I think there's just hatred on both sides. I- I'm not sure that uh, both sides respect each other. I really don't think they don't. I don't think the Bengals like the Chiefs. I don't think the Chiefs like the Bengals. But there is a a form of mutual respect between the Chiefs and the Bills, and I think that's why it makes it the best rivalry of the 2020s and probably will be moving forward. You know, it's one of those games that you're going to remember for quite some time. Win, lose, blowout or not, you're going to remember this one. A, because it's Patrick Mahomes' first true road game. You can make the argument that in 2021, the Super Bowl against Tampa Bay, that was at Raymond James Stadium, and the Buccaneers were playing there. So by definition, yeah, it could be a road game because you had a team playing in their own stadium hosting you. But we know at the Super Bowl, it was half capacity there, and you know it was a lot of corporate people there. It wasn't like what you're going to see at Highmark Stadium on Sunday night. No, that is going to be a electric, hostile, nasty crowd that the Chiefs are walking into. And that's what makes it special. And I think the NFL fan in you, not the Chiefs fan, the NFL fan in you wanted this game. We discussed it last week when breaking down all these matchups. You know, before Buffalo took on Pittsburgh, before the Chiefs took on Miami. In the back of your mind, you probably wished for something like Kansas City getting a uh, a Houston at Arrowhead Stadium make the path easier. But in the back of your mind, the NFL fan in you said, I kind of want Chiefs and Bills in Orchard Park. That's what I want. And I think it's such a ceremonious moment for this Chiefs team, for this Bills team, over the course of the last five years. 
You know, this dates back to 2020, the COVID year, when Buffalo really started to show who they could be. And they get red hot, all of a sudden you're going, damn, this Josh Allen guy is not some erratic, you know, strong arm, low IQ quarterback. He's not that anymore. That's what you got his rookie year. It took some time for Josh Allen to develop, but Buffalo knew that when drafting him. So in that COVID year, when Josh Allen started to become Josh Allen, it's when this rivalry brewed a little bit. And these two teams meet in the AFC Championship game, half-capacity crowd at the Arrowhead Stadium. And you get, for the most part, a pretty good game. But it was also the first time Buffalo realized, if we're going to beat this team, it's going to have to be this all-out aggression going for it, even early on in the game, putting up 35-40 points. You can't win it by field goals, which is what Sean McDermott tried to do in that first AFC title game. And he thought, well, let's rely on this defense, let's not turn it over, and take points where we can get them. And that burned Josh Allen and the Bills terribly. The Chiefs won that game comfortably, and there was a little bit of a skirmish at the end of the game, final minutes of the fourth quarter when the Chiefs had it wrapped up. And that was the defending champions, Chiefs, who had won 14 games in the regular season. They had rested their starters in Week 17, I believe it was. So really, they could have walked in at 15-1. and won. It was a team that wasn't experiencing much losing. They had won like 20 of 21 or 20 of 23, something like that. Buffalo, on the other hand, was just experiencing the success for the first time. And when they got punched in the mouth, it was, wow, I really do hate these guys. I hate them. And then you get to the 2021-2022 season. We all know what happened there. Or was it the 2000, yeah, that should have been right, the 21-22 season. That was the crazy divisional round game. But remember, the Bills had faced them earlier that year. They had avenged that AFC title loss to beat the Chiefs at Arrowhead Stadium, but then it didn't really matter because the Chiefs won maybe the greatest football game that's ever been played in that AFC divisional round game. And it does not matter how many times Josh Allen beats Patrick Mahomes in the regular season. The same way, I would argue, it never mattered how many times Patrick Mahomes beat Tom Brady in the regular season. It just doesn't move the needle for me. What I care about is what you do in January. How do you fare in January? Mahomes already has two Super Bowl rings. He's got two Super Bowl MVPs. Two MVPs, he's been a pro bowler, an all-pro, decorated as it gets. Josh Allen, though he may be the more gifted quarterback, and I've said that multiple times on the show before, I think he's more gifted. I mean, come on now, he's six foot five, six foot six, two 250 pounds, and he runs like that and throws like that? You know, I understand the, the lack of accuracy at times, but that's being gifted. Guys his size should not be able to move like that. Mahomes is the better quarterback, in my opinion. It's why he's got two Super Bowl MVPs. It's why he's got two MVPs and two rings. I think he's the better quarterback. He's got the better system. I think he's had better weapons around him. But now the beauty of this game on Sunday night is it's not the same Patrick Mahomes. It's not the same Patrick Mahomes team. And for Buffalo... 
I would say it's pretty much the same. They've dealt with some adversity this year. You know, they were fighting for a playoff spot. They were 6-6 six and six the last time they came to Kansas City and beat the Chiefs on that Kadarius Tony offsides play. That's why this game is being played. I, I don't think Buffalo makes the playoffs if they lose that game to the Chiefs. That would have put them at 6-7. and seven, and The momentum's not there. But that's why this game's in Buffalo. I just don't see a huge change from the Buffalo team last year, the one before that, to now. Certainly the names have changed. But the way they play you, the way they beat you, it's identical in my opinion. It really is. You can fear the offense. You can fear the defense a little bit. You can fear the environment. Differences in this game, it's not the same Chiefs team. It's not the same offense. It's not the same defense. You know, this Kansas City team will be just fine if they walk out of that game on Sunday night with a 17-14 to win. They can win it with their defense. Avoid the costly mistakes. I mean, it's going to be frigid, not as cold as it was at Arrowhead Stadium last Saturday night. But it's going to be pretty frigid. And you're taking on a Bills team that has everything, and I mean everything, to play for. And you could rebuttal me and say, well, everybody's got everything to play for. It's the playoffs. It's do or die. You can't lose. I get that. And I may get criticism for what I'm going to say here, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. The Chiefs are not playing for their legacy on Sunday night. The Buffalo Bills are. Does that factor into my decision as to who wins this football game? Well, we'll find out a little bit later on in the show. But here's the thing. The Chiefs are entering this game, as I just mentioned with Mahomes, with two Super Bowl rings. Not that I'm going to excuse a loss. Not that I'm going to make excuses. But it's not as dire in Kansas City as it is in Buffalo. And if you don't believe me, let's just sound it out here. Take a walk with me here. Of course, everybody listening wants the Chiefs to be on the winning side of this thing. If they do not... Does that really diminish anything they've done in the last five years? No, I'd still argue it's one of the greatest five-year stretches in NFL history. That's if they lose. If they win, hell, lock it in. This may rival that Patriots five-year stretch where they got two Super Bowls as well. You had a Super Bowl appearance, man, I think you can absolutely lock it in and take it to the bank at that point. That's what the Chiefs are playing for. The Chiefs are playing more so for, let's continue to build on this legacy. Buffalo is playing for just starting their legacy. They can't start their legacy, start their dynasty. Now there's much of a dynasty to start unless they beat the Chiefs on Sunday night. If they don't win, this window of contention is all but closed. I don't see how you could lose to the same team, the same quarterback, the same head coach three times in a row. I don't. And you also have to think that Buffalo got incredibly fortunate this year that in the AFC East, Miami got riddled with injuries down the stretch. They are fortunate the Bengals got riddled with injuries down the stretch. They are fortunate The Chiefs have an offense that's the worst in the Patrick Mahomes era. Yet here we are. 
And that's why I think it makes it better if you're a Chiefs fan. You may disagree with what I just said, that it's not so much of a dire point for the Chiefs as it is for the Bills. But I look at this game on Sunday night, the Chiefs have only things to gain. Will you be frustrated? Will you be pissed off if they lose? Absolutely. Nobody's going to deny that. Losing your season at the hands of the Bills? That wouldn't feel too good. That's a rival. You never want to lose to your rival. But looking at a bird's eye view here, you take a step back and go, all right, five years down the road, are we looking at this game as a legacy stain? I'm not going to. For Buffalo... If you look back five years from now, no matter what you do in the next five years, do you look back at this game as a legacy stain if you lose to the Chiefs at home? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's just the way it goes. It's the same thing as if Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady were to meet one more time. If Brady would have played an additional year or the Bucks would have gotten in the Super Bowl and the Chiefs got back there and you would have had a rematch in 2000. Uh, 22 would that have been? The 2000, yeah, 2022, yeah, that lines up. If they would have met again and Brady would have won, absolute legacy stain for Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. That you would have lost to Tom Brady not only three times in a row, two different franchises, Tampa Bay and New England. Now, Josh Allen could go on to win multiple MVPs. Uh, They could, down the road, beat Patrick Mahomes. Let's say four years from now. Not that anybody knows what the, the league's going to look like, what the Chiefs or Bills are going to look like. Let's say four years down the road, the Chiefs don't win the West. Let's say they get in as a wild card team. They're a six seed, and they take on the three seeded Buffalo Bills at Orchard Park, and they win. Does that move the needle for me? Probably not. That would be at that point 32 year old Patrick Mahomes. Travis Kelsey's likely not playing anymore. Like, we all remember in the Manning and Brady era, we all remember it, that Manning did get Brady, I believe, twice. I think they were 500 against each other in the playoffs. I think they had four total games in the playoffs. They were 2-2. Brady was 11-6 all-time over Manning. However, I would argue, I remember Brady's legacy a bit more. And that's even with them splitting in the playoffs. If Patrick Mahomes gets this one on Sunday, and I hate to make this an individual game, but if Mahomes gets Allen for the third time, Allen is never catching him. Never. And you want to know why? Because if the Chiefs get to yet another AFC Championship game, there is nobody that is going to touch that. I really don't believe, in this era of quarterbacks, anybody is going to have a run like that again. I really don't. And you got to keep in mind, you know, Allen's getting older. His play style does not bode well for a 33, 34-year-old quarterback. I mean, do you think Allen's going to be running and taking hits like he does at 32, 33? No. That goes the same for Mahomes. Do you think Mahomes is going to be running 30, 35 yards down the field in his mid-30s? No. You had to capitalize on the prime, and the prime is running out. For all of these great young quarterbacks, they still have. I mean, when you're 27, you can be in your prime for five or six more years. Do you lose a step? Yeah. Do you lose some strength on your arm? Yeah. They're going to be more expensive. Guys are going to leave. League gets tougher. More young talent comes in. 
And that's what I'm looking to on Sunday night. It's a great spot. A great spot for Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs to be in. Like I said, not to make excuses. Well, the thing is, though, they've been doubted now for a while. Kind of in a dumb way, the way that we used to doubt New England in those final years of Tom Brady until they'd beat you and go on to the Super Bowl. That kind of dumb doubt. That's where this Chiefs team is at. I mean, the funny part about it is that both these teams, same records, you know, these quarterbacks, uh, yeah, I would say Josh Allen's having the better statistical year, but not by much. He's got more interceptions. He's got 18 this year, and he's fumbled the ball a lot more times, too. I mean, that's 20-plus turnovers this year. That's not a good mark at all. Patrick Mahomes, with a shoddy receiving core and two tackles that didn't play up to standard this year, the numbers were a career low. But here they are. Divisional round game. AFC title appearance on the line. There's just more to lose for Josh Allen than there really is for Patrick Mahomes. When you take a step backward and evaluate this, who has more to lose? It's Josh Allen. Now, this can go one or two ways. You can step up to the pressure and say, this is my moment. It is do or die for me, more than just a playoff game. This is a legacy game for me. That's what Josh Allen is looking to. Patrick Mahomes, of course, more than anything. You know, advancing with this team, I don't know if many other quarterbacks in the AFC could do that right now. I would be very curious to see what a lot of these great quarterbacks would look like not having a true number one, and Travis Kelsey for the first time in, what, seven years, not having 1,000 yards? Still had a damn good year. Not the usual Travis Kelsey. Been banged up, battling some injuries, getting a little bit older. Their best receiver was a rookie pick on day two, Rashi Rice. This is the group you're going in with. Now, I do want to bring this up because I'm also not going to fall back on the, well, if they lose, they didn't have a very good offense. This is the best defense and maybe the best defense Patrick Holmes has ever had and ever will. That's kind of where I'm at. And then you can make the argument of if you get this type of defense, you can't waste it. You can't waste what could be the final year Chris Jones is in Kansas City. You can't waste maybe Legereus Sneed's last year with the Chiefs. You can't. But we do know that with dynasties, okay, just because a great player leaves, it doesn't lower your expectation. The beauty of this all, the Chiefs have won two Super Bowls. More than a chunk of quarterbacks that are playing right now will ever get to. Twice the amount, maybe one more. Like That's that's the funny thing here. If Patrick Mahomes retired tomorrow, bring a lot of chaos to this game on Sunday, but if it happened, a Hall of Famer. No doubt Hall of Famer. Two Super Bowls is hard to do. Three is incredibly difficult, but with how many more years he's got to play, I have no doubt in my mind. There's a couple more in the future. You just never can predict it, though, in the NFL. You never really know. know, Jake Gutierrez, the producer on the Border Patrol, glad to have Jake back, of course. I was talking to him today. Or maybe it was yesterday. When going over the Chiefs and the Bills. We talk about legacy games all the time, and, and Mahomes and Allen. This could be the last time we see him in the playoffs. Facing each other. Who knows? I would say it's unlikely that we never see them again. Play each other in a game like this, but you never know. 
Now, what happens if Buffalo falls off? What happens if they make the playoffs, but they're always getting eliminated in the first round? It just doesn't match up. You never know. Which is why it's vital. It's vital for Buffalo and Josh Allen to win this football game. If anything for the Chiefs, I mean, this is kind of the, the stomp them out, the squash the bug type of game. You win this game, Buffalo can never have an argument against you. They will never touch your legacy. You are the unbeatable to them. And we've said boogeyman before. Buffalo knows the Chiefs are the boogeyman. You can beat them in the daylight all the time. You can beat them in the regular season. It doesn't really matter. We saw that in New England for a long, long time with Tom Brady. Once Brady started racking up the Super Bowls, regular season games in Week 3 meant a hell of a lot more to the opponent than it ever did to Brady. We saw that. I mean, remember what Kansas City did to Tom Brady and the Patriots at Monday night game in late September? I'll never forget it, Uh, mainly because the Chiefs hadn't really experienced much success over New England in my lifetime, but also just playoff success. You wanted to have a reason to go, man, this could be the year they do it. They thumped Tom Brady on Monday Night Football. Brady and the Patriots said, okay, yeah, that was a lashing. Not fun to go through, but we don't raise banners for September wins. What happened? Well, the Chiefs, I don't even believe, made it further than the divisional round. They saw New England later that year, if I'm not mistaken. If that was 2014, the 15 playoffs is when the Chiefs beat Houston 30 to nothing and then lost to New England divisional round. So there you go. New England said, we'll see you again. We'll play you again. We'll beat you. Remember the last year of Alex Smith? Banner night for New England. Opening night. The Chiefs hang nearly 50 points in Foxborough. The Kareem Hunt game, his debut against the Patriots. Patriots lost. Unfortunate for them. What did they do? Went further than the Chiefs in the playoffs. And that's kind of the identity I think the Chiefs are stepping into. Regular season, yeah, we want to get in the playoffs, but we know once we get in, we're going to be just fine. And that's what everybody's waiting to see right now. Can Patrick Mahomes win on the road? If he does, you are going to experience a stretch of years where the Chiefs are going to go, give us a seed. Give us a seed and all those other teams that you know hung banners. For September, October wins, uh, that's not in Kansas City's DNA. I'm not going to say Buffalo hangs banners because they're a damn good football team and everybody knows how good Josh Allen is and what this game is going to mean for both franchises. It just feels like this is the very similar matchup. Different stage of the playoffs, but this reminds me a lot of the Brady-Mahomes game in 2019, AFC title game. People were writing off Tom Brady in New England, Kansas City. They were the fun, hot team at the time. They're at Arrowhead Stadium, rocking environment. No way. The Chiefs hadn't been to a Super Bowl in 49 years at that point. That's what was on the line for them. And, of course, Brady beats them in overtime. You block out the noise. You block out the pressure. There was more pressure that night on the Chiefs than there was on New England. New England had won Super Bowls before. A loss at that point for Brady did not stain his legacy. I don't believe it stained Mahomes' legacy at all, but it was that, damn, we were right there and we should have had that. We could have slayed the dragon. We could have put the fork in Tom Brady for the final time, and we'd always be able to have that. 
Had another chance to do it in the Super Bowl. Didn't get that done. That's why it feels so similar to those games. When you've got Allen and Mahomes. Allen has to win this game. Absolutely has to. Not just for himself. For the Buffalo Bills. That pressure is squarely on Buffalo. Not on Kansas City. That's how I'm walking into this game. It's not a scary thing to me. It's a fun game and it's an exciting game. Nobody wants to see the Chiefs be done just yet. But man, can you imagine the talking points on Monday morning if the Chiefs find a way to win this football game with this team this year? Unstoppable. And Buffalo, uh, that would kind of be the nail in the coffin to me. How do you overcome that? How do you overcome three losses to your rival in the playoffs? I don't think many teams have. And we'll have plenty of more Chiefs-Bills talk throughout the show tonight before we hit break. Kyle, any thoughts going into this game? It can be about the Chiefs, Buffalo, the pressure, the legacy, the stakes. Wherever you want to go with this, the floor is yours. Uh, I'm going to keep it with the pressure, and specifically with Mahomes. I mean, he's the only quarterback left in this playoffs who's been there and done it, and he's done it twice. Now, you're absolutely right about Buffalo. They need this game. The fans need this game. Sean McDermott needs this game. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, just think about it, the last couple of years. I've always felt like, you know, the top three was Kansas City in the AFC I'm talking about, Kansas City, Cincinnati, and Buffalo. And Buffalo has fallen short to both of them mm-hmm. multiple times. Never even made uh, a Super Bowl appearance. Even Joe Burrow did that. So they need it, I think, more than anybody in this playoffs after just years and years of failure. And one quick thing about Mahomes' first road playoff game. I feel like this week, especially at our station, nobody's really talking about that. Mahomes going on the road for the first no. time. No. I don't think he thinks about it. If he does, he's thinking about it like, all right, this is a new challenge. Yeah. I, I can I can slay, you know? It, I don't think it's going to be an issue at all. No, I don't think it is either. I'd imagine that the Chiefs have a very similar game plan they had against the Dolphins. You attack the middle of the zone, it's going to be softer. The Bills are down a couple of guys on that side of the defense. I saw the injury report today for Buffalo. A lot of guys not practicing. It's lengthy. Yeah, It's lengthy, and the other great part about it, if you're a Chiefs fan listening, I mean, this defense, this is the most confidence I've ever had in a Chiefs defense in my lifetime, really. This is a damn good defense. I feel like I can travel well in a spot like this, and I don't even need to bring up the regular season game. I really don't. I don't pull that much from the regular season to begin with but if there is one thing we're gonna dive into this later on in the show didn't have Pacheco last time out didn't have Drew Tranquil so much to talk about with this game but thought it'd be a good idea to kind of bring up the stakes to begin this show we got a long ways to go we're on air till 10 p.m tonight and it's not going to be all Chiefs and Bills talk don't worry we'll get your fix in of NFL football NFL divisional round talk but we are going to take our first break of the show when we come back some KU hoops talk with Braden Turner of the Ain't No Seats podcast that's next on Sports Radio 810 WHB We are rolling on on the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I am your host, Jack Johnson, alongside producer Kyle Collier. Time to talk some college hoops for the first time tonight as we jump on the phone line and chat with Braden Turner of the Ain't No Seats podcast. Be sure to catch them all of those podcasting platforms and check out some of their awesome merch. Very comfy sweatshirts they got there over on the podcast. But first things first, Braden, thanks for coming on the show tonight. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. No one's better at hyping up the podcast more than you, so I always appreciate that. Well, we got to. We got to because we're in full swing now of the Kansas basketball season. They are coming off a dominant showing in Stillwater against Oklahoma State, 90-66, to the final score, and now we'll be gearing up to take on West Virginia. A very bad West Virginia team, but, of course, a road game in the Big 12. First question I have for you here, Braden, it's been, for the most part, a very smooth sailing conference play for Kansas, with the exception of that loss in Orlando to UCF. What has been your takeaways from how they've bounced back from that game? Of course, losses like that can happen in such a tough conference, but the way they've won back-to-back games pretty comfortably, how does that sit with you? Yeah, it just it shows Bill Self how good he is at adjusting and kind of getting the guys fired up. I know they've looked, they've looked really good defensively the last two games against Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, and I think they found a little something with Johnny Furphy, who I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit on this call. He um, He's looked really good, and Bill Bill seems like they've confidently found a fifth starter. So, yeah, things things are looking up. They've they've defended a lot better, and any any road win on the road or in the Big 12, like you said, is huge, and they've had their troubles in Stillwater. So to so win, a, win a road game comfortably in the league is just big time. And you brought up Johnny Furphy, and I think a lot of Kansas fans have been thrilled with what he's looked like in the starting lineup. And he replaced El Marco Jackson, who I think, even though being a freshman, had gotten a lot of criticism for his play over the last month or so. Why do you think that Bill Self went with the change at this point in the season? Yeah, I think just Johnny plays. Johnny kind of comes in and plays hard, and Bill Bill obviously loves that. He He comes in, he's not afraid of the moment fires shots, gets after it on the glass, he'll go after loose balls, and you kind of saw Bill really show a ton of emotion against Oklahoma at home when Furphy went after a loose ball, and I think it just gives the lineup an extra spark, and it takes a lot of pressure off those All-Americans, and Kevin and Hunter, more spacing, and another another guy who's a threat to score it, so Furphy's a guy that's going to rebound, he can shoot it. Um, and he's going to play defense too. So I think it's a great change, and I think you're going to see a different Kansas team the rest of Big 12 play. We're talking with Braden Turner of the Ain't No Seats podcast. Give them a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, any podcasting platform that you guys may have. So Kansas up to 15 wins now in a matchup with West Virginia and Morgantown this coming Saturday, 3 p.m. tip-off for the Jayhawks in West Virginia. For the rest of the way here, Braden, in your opinion, how can they avoid another upset like they had in UCF? If you want to pick apart some of the flaws they had in this that game, but they're going to have tougher matchups on the road. They're going to have to play Houston on the road. They're going to have to get Kansas State on the road. They'll have to get Baylor. There are better teams they're going to have to go beat away from Lawrence. So how can they avoid the true upset, like what could happen on Saturday in Morgantown? Yeah, it's hard to really pinpoint one thing just because I think there's going to be nights where they, they struggle to score. I know KJ and Dewan are terrific players, but I think there's nights where they aren't aggressive shooting it and teams kind of sag off. I know KJ, um, he had a great night in Stillwater, and <clears throat> he always brings brings it from an energy standpoint. But, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint one thing, really. I mean... They they definitely have the experience factor over a lot of these teams. There's guys like Hunter Dickinson and Dewan, Kevin, who have all played in these big atmospheres for years now. So that's a that's an added bonus for this KU team on the road. Bill Self's been there and done it, but 
there's probably going to be a game or two they do lose on the road. I mean, you go 13-5 and five in this league where there's eight teams ranked in the top 25. That's a great um, great record in this league. So there's going to be a few they drop. But, yeah, there's you obviously want to avoid the stinkers like the UCF game, and that would be this Saturday against West Virginia and Morgantown where they have struggled in the past. But I think the experience and all the upperclassmen they have is a huge thing. Yeah, I remember we talked about this, maybe it was a month ago, when bringing up the starting five, and, and most of the production had come from the starting five, and I really don't feel like not a lot has changed, even though they've replaced Marco Jackson with Johnny Furphy. How much longer do you think they can play like this, where 90 to 95% of the production and the scoring comes from the starting five and the bench? They may only give you four to six points a night, but when you win by 24 points, really there's no issue there. Is this a repeatable formula to go far in March, or is somebody off the bench going to have to give that Remy Martin quality or that Mitch Lightfoot quality that the 22 National Championship squad had? It really is wild looking at the box scores after the game. You'll see there'll be nights where they don't score, the bench doesn't score at all, or you'll see a couple guys with two points. I I think they'll be able to survive without a bench. I think as long as the guys, someone like Parker Brown comes in and spells Hunter a couple minutes, or Timberlake comes in, and even El Marco, they come in and just play hard, give those, give those starters um, some rest on the bench. Obviously, Kev and Dewan and... KJ Hunter, you want to play those guys forty minutes, but you got to get them some rest. So if they just come in and give Bill Self decent minutes. I remember against Mizzou, Parker Brown came in for Hunter, and he just he gave KU five solid minutes and made an impact on the floor without even scoring. So examples like that. I mean, the twenty twelve team, they had Connor Tehan, uh, Kevin Young, Justin Wesley. It was a walk-on coming off the bench, so they really they had two All-Americans like this team playing a ton of minutes. So I think they can get by, and Bill Self usually has a seven or eight-man rotation regardless. So I think they'll be fine. You just need to come in and give solid minutes, especially if a guy like Hunter picked up two quick fouls. Parker Brown needs to come in and spell him and give gives Bill Self a couple uh, good minutes. We're talking with Braden Turner of the Ain't No Seats podcast going over the third-ranked Kansas Jayhawks coming off a 24-point win over the Oklahoma State Cowboys. Looking at some of these opponents, not only they played on Tuesday night, but who they're going to get on Saturday. I mean, Oklahoma State and West Virginia really now a bottom of the barrel. Of course, West Virginia, uh, they had to endure a coaching change. Bob Huggins being forced to resign, step down from his role. You know, Mike Boynton not really improving uh, this Oklahoma State team ever since Cade Cunningham uh, went on to the NBA draft. What have you seen that's happened with two of these schools? Because at one point, right, Braden, these two places used to be the house of horrors for Kansas. They couldn't win in Stillwater, and they couldn't win in Morgantown. And then on Tuesday night, there's barely anybody there for the Oklahoma State game, and I'd imagine there's going to be a lot of the same in Morgantown for West Virginia. What's happened to both these programs that at one point were so difficult to play against for Kansas? Yeah, it is wild. We were talking about this on the podcast the other night, but you think about Stillwater and like all the big Monday games they had in Stillwater where they pull off an upset against like a Texas or, yeah, like KU. They've beaten some of Bill's better teams, 2008, team that won it all, 2010. Um, they beat Frank Mason's team. They beat Devontae Graham's team in 2018. So I think they said Bill had a losing record um, in Morgantown and Stillwater combined before the game in Stillwater this week. So, yeah, I thought I thought Mike Boynton um, was going to do 
a really good job in Stillwater. He hasn't, things kind of haven't panned out. I know they were banned from the tournament one year. Um, and then, yeah, West Virginia, obviously you lose Huggins. It's going to be tough to immediately pick it back up. It's not like it's a storied uh, basketball program. So, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely not the same. I'm, I don't have that same – I don't think KU fans have that same fear, if you want to call it that, going into Stillwater and Morgantown like it used to be. Who is the team right now that scares you the most uh, for Kansas? Of course, they are the favorite to win this very tough conference. Houston was up there ranked higher than them before they drop you know, back-to-back games in Big 12 play. They lose up in Ames to uh, Iowa State and then believe fell to TCU, who, of course, TCU gave Kansas all kinds of trouble in Lawrence in their first Big 12 game of the year. So as things stand right now, who is the biggest threat to the Kansas Jayhawks? I know people aren't very high on them. Uh, analytics are, but I still think it's Houston. I know they don't score it as well as some people would hope. LJ Cryer's their lead guard, lead scorer. I, he's a really good guard. They just defend so well and they're so good on the board. So they're going to, they're going to lock you down defensively. And when you get a shot up, they're going to get the rebound. So it's obviously just, it's tough to put up points on this Houston Cougars team. There's been multiple games this year where they gave up less than 40 points, multiple games where they've given up less than like 55. So it's always going to be a battle with them. No one's really going to blow them out. Uh, it's not a team that scares you from a scoring standpoint, but they're going to kind of muddy it up, defend, and they're going to rebound missed shots. So I still think they're the biggest threat. Baylor obviously has some studs, and Scott Drew obviously has a national title, so they're always going to be in the mix. The one team I still wonder about and I just don't know a ton about yet is BYU. They're top 10 team on Ken Palm. Um, they're very good defensively, too. So there's a lot of teams in the Big 12 that can just flat out defend KU, Iowa State, Oklahoma, Houston, BYU. So it's going to be a tough stretch for KU the rest of the way, and it's going to be a tough stretch really for everyone. We're talking with Braden Turner of the Ain't No Seats podcast. And even though, Braden, we always love your insight on college basketball and specifically this Kansas team, I want to get what was going through your mind on Sunday. It was the day after Kansas had beaten Oklahoma, and then all of a sudden Kansas fans are you know, bombarded with this news of Lance Leipold potentially taking the job at Washington, which... You know, two or three years ago, if you would have told a Kansas fan their next coach was going to be try and or try somebody was trying to poach him uh, and run her up for the national championship, I think it would have floored you and, and think that would never be possible. But at one point in time, I feel like every Kansas fan had thought, "Wow, uh, this is really going to be it with the stadium under renovation. We're going to lose Lance Leipold, and a lot of players probably would follow him." Uh, up to Washington. So what was going through your mind? How did you feel about the time? Did you ever really think that he was going to take that Washington job? Oh, absolutely. And we were talking about this the other day, but Saturday night I was at the Chiefs game, and I guess wind, or it had caught, Leipold leaving had caught some wind Saturday night, and I didn't even really hear about it or know about it. I was at the game kind of enjoying the Chiefs win, and it was negative 80 degrees, so... (laughs) I woke up a Sunday, and I'd get probably 20, 25 texts from people just losing their minds, like, what's going on? And I had no idea. But, yeah, I woke up and kind of, I mean, a mini heart attack. Obviously, KU had that terrible run there from '09 until Leipold came here, and Leipold leaving would have just probably brought them right back to the very bottom again. And it's just 
it's a testament to Travis Goff, first off, for putting all those resources towards the football team with the new stadium and the commitment he's shown. And then Leipold, I mean, God, it just it shows how much how loyal of a guy he is, how much he loves the community, KU fans, and it's it's just amazing. You you talked about it a couple of years ago. If you would have said this, I would have called you crazy. And this is a Washington team who played for the national championship last week. So I I, mean, I couldn't be happier. And it I him staying and not taking that job, I really think it's one of the biggest um, biggest days in KU athletics history. Well, you know, the interesting thing about Lance Leipold is ever since, you know, the end of the 2022 season, even though they had a losing record at 6-7, and seven, you know, he starts getting tied to other jobs. You know, Wisconsin was going to be open. Nebraska was going to be open. And, of course, this Washington probably had the most smoke around it because Vegas even had him as the number one candidate for the Washington Huskies. But they go with Jed Fish of Arizona. And, of course, Arizona is going to be joining the Big 12 this coming year. I don't know about you, though, Braden. I don't want to speak too early or jinx anything. But I really feel like if he was to turn down a job like this, he really is going to be at Kansas for the rest of his career because there's been too many good job opportunities that he's turned down to stay at Kansas. What do you think about that? Yeah, you just laid it out, and that's something I've been thinking about since Sunday and KU fans as well is all these all these jobs and jobs that people thought might be his dream jobs, kind of like Nebraska. He's a Wisconsin guy. He coached at Wisconsin Whitewater. And then a Washington who's actually moving to the Big Ten, um, which would obviously join the league of the jobs I just talked about, Nebraska, uh, Wisconsin, and he's kind of a Big Ten guy. So him turning that down, to me at least, solidifies him being here for a while. I know, I guess a program like Michigan could come after him if Harbaugh was to leave, but it has to give KU fans a lot of confidence on him sticking around and I think it's just him wanting – he wanted a Power 5 job. He got it. Now he's proved he can win at the Power 5 level. And I think big, the Big 12 is going to be easier to win in than the Big 10. I mean, you talked about Arizona coming, but Fish is gone. You kind of look at the Big 12, like Utah, Kansas State, KU. You still have Oklahoma State and Iowa State, but I don't think those are really powerhouse programs. Those are good programs with good coaches. But Big 10, you got to deal with – Michigan, Ohio State, uh, Penn State, there's obviously a ton of big-time programs in that league. But I think he got that Power 5 job, and he's proved he can win here. And now I think KU could be one of the best programs in the Big 12 as long as he's here. Last couple questions for you, Braden. We really appreciate your time. Talking with Braden Turner of the Ain't No Seats podcast. I can't believe I'm about to ask you this for Kansas football, but considering what they're going to be returning, how their schedule really shakes out, is it Big 12 title game appearance or bust? Or should fans say, you know what, anytime you get over seven or eight wins at this point, that should be considered a very good year? I think Big 12 title game has to be the dream or the hope because they proved it this year that they can hang with any team in the league. The one game, me and you have talked about this, but the one game where they truly did get blown out was the Texas game, and that was some weird circumstances the day of the game with Jalen getting hurt that morning. But then you look at the Texas Tech game, you look at the Oklahoma State game, the K-State game, they were right there. That was obviously without their starter, and a couple of those was was without their second-string quarterback and Jason Bean. So they've shown they can prove it. Not only that, but they're, they have one of the most favorable schedules next season over any team in the Big 12. They avoid Arizona. They avoid Utah. 
which are two of the, they're going to be top 15, top 20 teams in the conference. They avoid Oklahoma State, who's going to be one of the favorites in the Big 12. So their tougher games are going to be at K-State, which will always be tough. But besides that, the schedule's favorable. Like you said, mostly everyone's coming back. So I think that should be um, the goal for this team, and I'm sure that's what it is. But I think fans should have that same goal, too. And last question for you here. If they are to get to the Big 12 title game, how many wins do you think they have to have to get there? Okay, I thought I thought we were going to start talking about college football playoff <laughs> with that question. Maybe Which we'll save that I'm for crazy. another week. <laughs> people think I'm crazy, but if you make the conference title game, I don't yeah. see how there's, there's not a chance to make the playoffs with it being expanded to 12 teams now. But, yeah, I think, man, so you play, you play nine Big 12 games, right? Mm-hmm. I would say, what eight and one or seven and two, and then assuming you have to win all your non-conference games, right? Yeah. So to yeah, get to so, ten and two or eleven and one. Yeah, I think I think you'd have to go ten and two to make the Big Twelve title game, and I feel pretty good about their non-con schedule. They'll they play Lindenwood, and then they play UNLV again. I, I'm not sure what's going on with the Illinois game. They talked about potentially that game getting changed i don't know if that's happening but i feel good about them going three and oh in the non-con and then finish up seven and two eight and one in the big 12 with the favorable schedule i can see them i really can see them finishing 10 and two or 11 and one that sounds crazy but that's really just how i feel as a non-biased fan obviously no i actually did lie i've got one more question for you and it does not pertain at all to kansas basketball or kansas football <laughs> Does Patrick Mahomes get it done at Highmark Stadium in Orchard Park on Sunday night, or will it be the final time we are previewing Chiefs football for 2023-2024? I truly think they get it done on Sunday, and I, I feel good about the game, which kind of scares me. I think, I think the Chiefs' physical corners will match up well with those Bills receivers, and the Chiefs, the Chiefs are going to come out ready to go no matter what, in my opinion. They're not going to come out flat because this is the first time they've done this. First time they've went on the road. Mahomes talks about playing that villain mode. And I really, truly think all the pressure is on Buffalo. Everyone talks about how they haven't beaten the Chiefs in the playoffs. It's been since the mid-'90s, since they made it to the Super Bowl. The Chiefs can kind of go in there, play the villain mode, underdog mode, kind of no one believes in us mode like Tom Brady used to do. But I don't think there's any pressure on the Chiefs. And I think there's some pressure on Buffalo. I love the matchup for the Chiefs. Um, get get a little revenge from the regular season game, and I, I truly think they get it done and they move on to the AFC Championship game. All right. Well, Braden, thanks so much for your time. As always, we really appreciate it, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Jack. There he goes. That's our guy Braden Turner of the Ain't No Seats podcast. Be sure to check them out on all your podcasting platforms. Very easy to find them. They're also on YouTube if you want to get a live stream version of that. I know it's not actually live stream, but to check their podcast out if you like the visual representation because they do a fantastic job over there. We always love getting Braden's insight, whether it's KU basketball or it is KU football. Also, check out their merchandise, man. I know Braden was promoted in a little bit. Their sweatshirts have an awesome font, uh, super comfortable. Uh, man, they do a great job over there, and we are always very appreciative when he takes time out of his night 
to join us here on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Well, that's going to wrap up our number one here on the Night Shift. When we return, we are going to at some point be talking some Missouri hoops. We're going to talk some more NFL, of course, going over this Chiefs and Bills game. And stay tuned for our number three. UK State fans won't want to miss Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com and our breakdown of all the NFC and AFC divisional round games this weekend. But like I said, that'll do it for hour number one. When we come back, we will roll on on the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. We begin hour number two of the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I am your host, Jack Johnson, alongside producer Kyle Collier. Before we dive into more Chiefs and Bills talk, we're going to hop on the phone line because we got a caller who wants to make a prediction on this game, and that is Raymond. Raymond, what's on your mind? Hi, I really think that the Chiefs can do this if they believe. I know Patrick Mahomes believes in them, but I, I, I think that the offense has got to be on the same page with Patrick Mahomes. We got to learn how to catch a ball defense downfield a little bit more deeper, like Tyreek Hill did. You know, they were actually on the same page when he. We really miss him, you know. Uh, we got we got to learn how to kiss the ball, and we got to learn how to protect better for Mahomes, so he can do some out of the out of pocket running, you know, get us a first down, to get the get the offense going. Uh, on defense side, I think we're going to be all right. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Raymond, and thanks so much for your call. You know, and uh, my prediction is the prediction is if the Chiefs do win in Las Vegas, Travis Kelsey gets on one knee. For Taylor Swift and Elvis Presley comes back from Hawaii. Thank you. All righty. Well, that is quite the take we have here. Really great predictions there from Raymond. Again, always appreciate your call. And if you want to make any more predictions about this game, uh, you can call into the phone line right now, 913-3810-810. That's 913-3810-810. I do understand that with this offense, we're used to the the high-flying passing attack. Before this year, I should say. Used to the high-flying passing attack, uh, you you certainly miss Tyreek Hill. You miss how guys could get open 20, 25 yards down the field. There was nobody within 5 or 10 yards of them. Easy throws for Patrick Mahomes. Uh, this team, unfortunately, just has to win in different ways when they have the ball. A lot of it comes down to Isaiah Pacheco. A lot of it comes down to catching the damn football number one. But the way their plays are designed are different. They're designed for the current group they have, and they're designed to make it easier on them, and easier on Patrick Mahomes for that matter. I personally believe, and we'll have a deep breakdown of this coming up in this segment, that there is a specific way to attack this Bills defense. And going deep, is, of course, welcomed every once in a while. Um, I don't think that the message needs to be, let's just win those one-on-one battles outside. I believe there is a soft spot in that defense. I believe there is a weak spot, and the Chiefs can exploit that with the personnel they have on the field. You've got Travis Kelsey, who is an expert at finding the soft spots in a zone, soft spots in the middle of the field. Rashi Rice, uh, we've seen him in the performances that he's had over the last few weeks, especially in the wild card round against Miami, finding the soft spots in the middle of the field. You know that to me is going to be what makes or break th- breaks this offense on Sunday night. If the Bills can find a way 
to limit those looks, well, then you're going to see Patrick Mahomes running for his life a lot. You are going to see him under duress. And you're going to see a stagnant offense. Remember the way that offense looked on Christmas Day against the Raiders? That seems about right. If that middle of the field is not open, if the soft spots are not exploited, it's going to be a long night for that offense. You're going to have to pray to God. Isaiah Pacheco has a 100-120-yard performance. Because that will just allow the soft spots to open up because you're going to have to worry about finding ways to slow down Isaiah Pacheco. But what I took away, and I'm curious of your thoughts, Kyle, on this, I was very interested when I went back and watched the Steelers and Bills. That game, it had moments in the second half where it was, if Pittsburgh scores here, we've got an entertaining ball game. It was a one-score game at some point, and that says more about Buffalo's inability to close than I think Pittsburgh's ability to come back. But a big reason as to why Pittsburgh made that a game was that Mason Rudolph was able to pick apart the linebackers of Buffalo due to injuries. They had reserves out there. It was very telling when Buffalo was at its best in that game, early on, forcing the quick three and outs. They had healthy guys out there. They had their number ones. They had guys that could guard the flat, tight ends over the middle of the field, Friar Muth. They they had somebody that could go up against Pickens, Deontay Johnson, and they could bottle up Najee Harris. It was easier to keep Mason Rudolph from just reading the defense. It was easier for Buffalo, not easier for Pittsburgh. But once Buffalo got banged up, that's when I started to notice some things. That the Bills just don't have athletic enough and quick enough reserves to hang with guys that run routes over the middle. That is perfect. Perfect for the Chiefs' game plan. And we'll know the final injury report tomorrow, who actually is going to be playing in this game for Buffalo, and more importantly on that defense. I just think if there is one team that can exploit the middle of the field like that, it's Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. It is Travis Kelsey right over the middle of the field, the the seven-yard curl route, sit down right in the middle, catch and run for three or four or five more yards. That will just keep the chunk yardage coming. And we saw that against Miami. Miami was depleted in the linebacking core. Soft in the middle. If you are soft in the middle, you can't stop anybody. It's better to be soft on the outside, the one-on-one coverage, as crazy as that sounds. Because that still means the quarterback's got to make the great throw. Now, if wide receiver burns a cornerback and there's no help over the top with the high safety, then you're in trouble. But in terms of just easy plays for a quarterback, chunk yardage, if you are soft in the middle, if your linebackers can't protect that area, it's going to be a long night for the defense. I don't expect the Chiefs to hang 30-plus points. I'd imagine this will be lower scoring. You know, I think the Chiefs are still going to have their struggles in the red zone. The field shrinks a little bit, less options to turn to. You can win this game with the defense, and a big part of making sure that defense stays healthy, stays rested, it's having this offense play kind of exactly the way they did against Miami. Even if that means settling for field goals, so be it. I know you want to go for the kill shot, but in games like this, I'm taking points. I'm taking points and try to win this game with the defense unless the defense has proven to me in this game they can't stop Buffalo on that night. If they can't stop Buffalo, then you do have to change it and try to go down and, and go for it on fourth and two, fourth and goal. All those short yardage situations have to be more aggressive. 
But we saw in the Miami game, even though the offense wasn't putting up 30, 40, 50 points, a lot of field goals were kicked. They were moving the ball with ease, and that was in terrible conditions. And it's not going to be great conditions at Highmark Stadium in Buffalo on Sunday night. I still think, though, this is an offense that can exploit a lot of the weaknesses of the Bills. And not that the Bills' defense is bad. It's a Bills' defense that is, I think, ninth in scoring defense. It's good. Top ten. However, it's banged up. Like Miami was banged up. And the Chiefs, they're healthy offensively. They're healthy defensively. Oh, and one more thing. The Chiefs have two extra days of rest where Buffalo does not. And playing Pittsburgh on Monday afternoon. So, Kyle... My question to you is when you were watching the Steelers and Bills and Mason Rudolph found a little bit of rhythm going to guys over the middle, what were you thinking about? Were you thinking, oh, you know, they, they're up by three scores, they can have a bit of a cushion, or was there something to it that, hmm, this is something the Chiefs can attack when they inevitably play Buffalo in the divisional round? It absolutely is, and it should be. I mean, you saw the formula against against the Dolphins. You've already mentioned it, really. Rasheed Rice and Travis Kelsey beat those guys over the middle. Now, you know, Sterling and I, we, we talked to Matt Verderham uh, last night, actually. Mm-hmm. The Bills play heavy in the zone. Yeah. And I think Travis Kelsey, who's obviously the most Mahomes-friendly pass-catching weapon the Chiefs have, and Rasheed Rice, as we've seen it over the season, he's he's getting there. These guys these guys know how to attack the zone, and if they want to cheat up to take off uh, like a uh, – uh, who are their safeties now? Uh, Jordan Poyer, Micah Hyde. Yeah. If, they're, if they want to cheat up to take Rasheed Rice out, out of those crossing routes and Travis Kelsey floating over the middle, that's fine. That opens up maybe a deep ball, potentially. Mm-hmm. And I know the explosive play has obviously been missing from the from the Chiefs' offensive formula this, this year, but I really think it is an, an easier defense to attack. Vaughn Miller's not the same guy. Mm-hmm. Matt Milano's gone. Tredavious White is gone. Uh, they tried to fix that with Rizul Douglas trading for him from the Packers. He's on the injury report this mm-hmm. week. And for instance, Jack, Buffalo Bills linebacker AJ Klein was their leading tackler against Pittsburgh. He had believe I believe he had not played a single snap this year. He was on and off the practice squad, and he was not on the postseason roster before yeah. that game. And he finished that game with eleven tackles. They are banged up, almost even more so than Miami was. Yeah. At key, key spots yeah. as well. And, you know, to be honest with you, there were moments in that first matchup this year at Arrowhead Stadium where I think the Bills' defense looked good. It didn't feel overwhelming. And that was a healthier Bills' defense. Of course, different environment, different stage, different stakes. This is do or die, whereas that was a Week 14 regular season game. I just don't know for the Bills' defense how they can be just fine without their linebackers. Matt Milano, as you brought up, he was instrumental in beating the Chiefs in the regular season because he was a great coverage linebacker. He is somebody you could have you know, kind of shadowed with or shadowed Travis Kelsey with. And then you have Bernard go down. He's taken out on, on the cart last game. So as you mentioned, A.J. Klein comes in, not a lot of reps, and he's the leading tackler. Like That is absolutely being talked about in the offensive war room, if you will, uh, all this week in Kansas City, that if we're going to attack them with ferocity, if we're going to send the message, punch them in the damn mouth from the get-go, 
it's going to have to be through over the middle of the field. I'm all for establishing the run, right? It's the old school saying that your high school coach likely said, establish the run. we got to show our physicality. We've got to you know, go and just run them over, smash mouth football, and if we do that, high safeties come down, they got to load the box, then we take the top off the defense. I kind of like the way Andy Reid in this offense, and I'll throw Matt Nagy into that, that this was a group that kind of surprised Miami. Miami practiced all week long saying, oh, it's going to be cold. They've got a really aggressive and physical runner in Isaiah Pacheco. we got to stop the run. And what did Andy Reid do? Andy Reid said, first three or four plays, we're throwing the football. Because you're not prepared for that. Buffalo, they're likely thinking of that. Of Okay, they may not just say, hey, first and second down, we're running the football. It's not going to be... A blizzard, I don't think. I think there actually was a tweet that Buffalo put out of looking for more snow shovelers for the stadium. I think the blizzard has been talked down a little bit, and they actually did a great job of getting that field ready for Monday. I don't expect it to be some skating rink where it really can favor the run, and that makes me think, man, this is a spot where you can really look at Patrick Mahomes and the offense and go, it's the perfect matchup. Buffalo's not going man. They're going to stick to zone, and they're going to hope that the guys they put out there can hang with Travis Kelsey, can hang with Rashi Rice. Now, the difference is, compared to last couple years, there's less guys you have to worry about. There's three you have to worry about offensively, Kelsey, Pacheco, Rice. If two of those guys are bottled up, I don't believe one of them is going to you know tear off and just have this unbelievable performance in a Chiefs win. The Bills take two of those guys away, the Chiefs aren't winning. I just have a hard time believing they do. I mean, we still haven't seen the dominant version of Travis Kelsey in quite some time. I would say since, what, the the Broncos game on Thursday night football at Arrowhead? Maybe it was the Chargers game. I can't remember which game was first. We haven't seen that Travis Kelsey in a while. He's dropped some passes, dropped a few last week against Miami. I think he's due. And make it easy on him, really. Make it as easy as possible on Travis Kelsey. Those middle-of-the-field plays are his bread and butter. Now, Buffalo's smart. Buffalo's had a good defense all year long. They are looking at their weaknesses. They are looking as to how the Chiefs are going to exploit that and try and take it away. Can they do it? I'm not sold. i got to see it. It's just something to keep in mind because I think a defense can always try to take away a certain part of an offense. They can take away how an offense is going to attack them. But it's also about, do you have the players? Do you have the athleticism to do it? I'm not sold they do. I'm not sold that Buffalo and their reserves have the defense to slow down or bottle up the middle of the field. Slow down the passing attack, bottle it up, however you want to call it. I just, I don't see it. I don't see how Buffalo's going to be able to do it. At the same time, I don't see this Chiefs defense going in and holding Buffalo under 14 points. I mean, the Bills are going to get their totals. Josh Allen's had, what is it, seven or eight straight games with multiple touchdowns? Like He is going to get his. It's a matter of where this game is at in the fourth quarter, how it is decided early on. Lots of things we can all wonder about. And I'm going to continue wondering about until 5.30 on Sunday night. How this game really is going to go. How healthy... Buffalo is going to be. Kyle, my second question to you is more so for this Chiefs defense. We know that the offense 
is going to have to attack the Bills' defense in a variety of ways. How do you slow down this Bills' offensive attack? It really does feel like there's more weapons that they have than Kansas City's offense does. They are explosive. they got a great running back in James Cook, a running quarterback in, in Josh Allen. Even if Gabe Davis doesn't play, you got Shakir, you got Dawson Knox, Dalton Kincaid, Stephon Diggs, of course. There's a lot of guys you have to bottle up. How do you think the Chiefs and Steve Spagnuolo go about slowing down this group? It sounds a little bit crazy to be saying this, but you know their number one option, Stephon Diggs, I have no pause, no worry. I'm not nervous about that at all. Sneed has shown that he can shut mm-hmm. down your number one option, no matter who it is. Justin Jefferson, A.J. Brown, Stephon Diggs. I think it'll be Tyreek Hill. I think it'll be very much the same of what we've seen this year. So then that leaves Gabe Davis, the tight ends, Knox and Dalton Kincaid, mm-hmm. and James Cook. I really think the tight ends and or James Cook and Josh Allen's running ability that's that's their X, X factor. Now, the thing going against them is this Chiefs team, they can tackle. The DBs especially. If Josh Allen runs, he's going to have he's going to have defensive backs who are going to who are going to bring him down. I know yeah. he's enormous and there's a lot of controversy in that uh, Steelers game about was he doing a fake slide? Mm-hmm. Is he sliding too late? All that. I think the Chiefs defense after watching the film of the Bill Steelers game, they're going to see that. They're going to they're going to know how to attack him in the open field, especially. So, really, what it's going to come down to is something the Chiefs defense hasn't done all that well this year, and that's just turning the football over. I think if Josh Allen makes a mistake or two, this game should be Kansas City's. Because look how Mahomes was mm-hmm. against the Dolphins. He threw the threw the ball away a lot. He didn't try to force anything. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Given the pressure, the stakes of this game, as we mentioned in the opening of this show, Josh Allen, he may he may be, you know, he may try to force some things. He may mm-hmm. try to press the issue. In the red bit. zone, too. Yeah, especially there. I mean, if you turn him over, I, I really think, you win the turnover battle, I really think this is Kansas City's game all the way. I'm very interested to see how this stadium reacts and how Sean McDermott reacts, and Josh Allen for that matter, to kind of jump to a different point here but kind of in the the same breath to bring up the turnovers. What if the Chiefs open up this game receiving the ball and they don't go down and score in like eight plays? What, What type of air is sucked out of that stadium? Because even though it's early and nobody's waving the white flag down seven to nothing, it's just the, the mental hurdle that everybody knows the bills have going into this game. It's like they need, a lot to go right. Not to say they need a miracle to beat the Chiefs. They're expected to. Vegas has them as the favorite in this game. At the end of the day, though, we know that football, though it is 90% physicality, and some football players will tell you, you know, maybe it's even like 60-40, a lot of it is mental. A lot of it is how you can brave conditions and how you can handle the, the physicality. I know I just brought physicality, but the mental part of it is, can I handle it? And I think for Buffalo, they want the crowd to be in it as long as possible. I thought Cincinnati did a great job last year at handling the conditions, handling Buffalo's crowd, and they stomped on them. I mean, the crowd was taken out of it early third quarter. And for the Chiefs, it's a different opponent that's coming into Orchard Park. Patrick Mahomes hasn't gone there yet. With a single fan in the stands. Remember the COVID year when they went to Buffalo it was the Clyde Edwards-Lair game. Nobody was there. 
Nobody was there in Buffalo. So this is his first chance to experience it. It'll be a venomous crowd, a very rowdy crowd, and the goal for the Chiefs, as cliche as it sounds, as Hollywood as it sounds, they got to take the crowd out of it. They, they have to. And I think they can. I mean, last week against Miami, it was the most perfect, picturesque opening drive they could have had. Everything came easy to them. And that's the other mental part of it. If you go down the field on Buffalo in seven, eight, nine plays effortlessly, oh, that is a huge mental aspect of it. Going, damn, that was easy. And how many times do you see a team effortlessly go down the field and then not do it again? They'll be able to do it multiple times in the game. That's what I'm looking for. The disaster is Chiefs get the ball, three and out, or there's a turnover, and then you get the crowd at full riot. You know, that's where it gets dangerous for the Chiefs. Because we know with this team, they're not really built to come from behind. This is a team, I think, that needs to build a comfortable lead and coast with this defense. Win it with your defense. You don't need 30 points. You don't need 35, 40, nothing like that. You can win this game 20 to 17. You can win this game 20 to 17, force a couple of turnovers, and make sure you take care of the football. And you had a clean game last week, but Miami's also had a bad defense all year long. It's a tougher task, tougher environment. I'm very interested, though. Very, very interested in the mental aspect for it for both of these teams. We go back to our first segment tonight of legacy. What's on the line? The pressure. It's on Buffalo. It is on Buffalo 100%. And if you don't believe that, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts why the Chiefs have more pressure. I just I don't think they do. Not they're going to come out lackadaisical, nothing like that. I just think about it and they go, man, maybe they play better knowing that we can absolutely spoil a franchise right here. We can stomp on any hopes and dreams they've ever had. Tortured fan base continued to be tortured. They can play, for lack of a better term, and this you know leads into Patrick Mahomes, they can be the Grim Reaper. They can take the soul out of the Buffalo Bills at Highmark Stadium on Sunday night. That's what they have going for him, for them. And I think for the the mental part of football, when you've got that confidence, when you know what you can do to an opponent, I mean, this isn't a small man's game, a small-minded man's game. Well, the Chiefs want to crush them, stick the knife in their heart, twist it, and rip it out. That's what they have going for them. Buffalo, they want to do the same for the Chiefs, but the Chiefs feel pretty good about what they've done over the last five years. You know, they've reached the mountaintop twice. They've been to the mountaintop, didn't conquer it three times. You know, if you count the, the Super Bowl loss to Tampa Bay, and I worded that kind of poorly, but you know what I mean. Three Super Bowls going back to 2019-2020. I know a lot of teams that would kill for that. And Buffalo, even though this isn't the Super Bowl, it kind of is their own Super Bowl. This is their storyline. And by every measure, every way, shape, and form, the Chiefs are the villain in this story. They are the most hated team in the NFL. Nobody, and I mean nobody outside of Kansas City, unless you're a Chiefs fan in another city, want to see them win this football game. Because if they do, oh boy. It'll be an insufferable amount of people that will make it known that you have conquered their team.
like I've said multiple times, the Chiefs can bury Buffalo on Sunday night. That they can never recover. I do not believe Buffalo can recover from that. Now, maybe there are Buffalo fans out there that say, come on now, we lived through four Super Bowl losses. We recovered eventually. Yeah, after 20 yeah, years of, yeah, of dormant football. I, I think Buffalo makes the playoffs next year, and I think that you know, Josh Allen's going to be one of this generation's greatest quarterbacks. It's a legacy thing, though. And that's what everything ties back to for me. And there's just teams that, at the end of the day, you... You know, hang your coat up, hang your hat up, and say, I can't beat him. I just can't. And, you know, we always like to watch those movies, maybe from your childhood, where the bully, you know, early on in the movie would beat up on the runt or beat up on the the skinny kid. And what happens all the time in Hollywood? Well, the bully eventually gets beaten. The Chiefs are the bully. But this isn't Hollywood. This isn't some movie. This isn't... uh, this movie could end with the bully <laughs> basically beating the skinny kid into oblivion. That's what I think is on the line here. Yeah, I would say that you know all these things that have happened to Buffalo, they're they're due to have some some wrong things go right. This is real life. It's one on the field. They know it. The Chiefs know it. And that's what's fun about this football game. And for the first time since Patrick Mahomes has been quarterback for the Chiefs. And it's a weird opponent to feel this way against. I just don't have this anxious, you know, unbelievably debilitating, nerve-wracking feeling. I don't. I'm being quite honest with you. I really do not. Because for the first time in the Patrick Mahomes era, by a lot of people, he's not expected to win. This Chiefs team is not expected to beat Buffalo. And I like that feeling. I'm sure the Chiefs like that feeling. For Buffalo, I'm sure they're saying, stop Stop picking us. No, we want to be this team that has to prove we can beat them. No, they don't want to be hearing all these national pundits saying there's no way the Chiefs win this. Come on, have you seen their offense? You know, have you seen how hot the Bills have been? It feels nice to have somebody pat you on the back. I just feel like if I were Buffalo, I'd be like, let's just keep it all quiet. Let's not say anything. No bulletin board material. No bulletin board material. And I think both sides have done a great job of that. Nobody's nobody's saying anything to get you burned. That's different with the Chiefs and the Bengals. They don't care. Things are flying back and forth all week. And that would have been the case if the Bengals made the playoffs. This rivalry, though, man, it already feels like it's storied. There's just another chapter to write. And this chapter uh, could be a pivotal point in how we... How we assess this rivalry a decade from now, right? When you hear Manning and Brady, just off the top of your head, without bringing up the stats, the record, I know I did earlier in the show, so it's kind of cheating, but when you look back, now that it's been you know 10 to 15 years, who do you think dominated that series? Brady. No, Manning had a great career. Manning won two Super Bowls, right? So he was decorated as an own. But when you think of the Manning Brady rivalry, if you walked up to fifty average NFL fans, who do you think the majority say? Brady. Now there's always gonna be those fans that say, Oh, Brady was a system quarterback and Manning was much better, much more talented. That's a different debate. 
The average fan, the average person, they're going to say, yeah, Brady was better. I think it's the same thing with Allen and Mahomes. There's still people out there who will say Allen's the better quarterback. There's always going to be people that do that. But head-to-head matchups is something that I really think hold a lot of weight. A lot of weight. And this is going to be one that keeps Patrick Mahomes untouchable. You beat Josh Allen and once again go to the AFC title game, that would be what, six in a row? Six in a row. And even though it would be him likely going on the road to Baltimore, there's another you know, element he can conquer. Lamar has to have it against Stroud on Saturday afternoon. And if he beats him and then he plays either Mahomes or Allen on Sunday or Saturday, whatever it will be, next weekend, he has to win. For his legacy, he has to do it. So I don't know if I'm in the minority. I don't know if I'm in the majority. I just feel like it's 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 an exciting game more than anything. I am revved up as an NFL fan about this. Whereas last year, Chiefs-Bengals, oh man, that was debilitating nerves for me. Because you know why? The Bengals were 3-0 against the Chiefs at that point. Mahomes could have not recovered from that. Back-to-back years, losing to the Bengals in the AFC title game, and you're 0-4 against them, that's incredibly difficult to overcome for your legacy. And the Bengals getting back-to-back Super Bowl appearances would have been a tough pill to swallow. The good thing is they won. That's the difference between last year and this year. This year, feels like you can only add to the legacy. You can't stain it with a loss. Not that you go in saying, well, it's okay if we lose. No, I'm not saying that at all. Not making excuses. It just feels like more of a crush-the-hopes-and-dreams type of game. You, five years from now, you'll remember this game, win or lose. If they lose, though, I'm just not going to look back five years from now and say that was one of his worst losses. And I guess it depends on how the game happens. If they blow a 28 to nothing lead, yeah, likely the worst loss you'll ever endure in the playoffs. In terms of opponent, though, no, no. Losing to the Bills at Highmark Stadium in the divisional round, no, that's not a horrific loss. It's not. If they win, though, I'd put it up there just about any single playoff win he's got. Super Bowl, of course, you you have Eagles and Niners there. AFC title game against the Bengals. You know, divisional round game against the Bills two years ago. You got those games. This one just feels different, and I'm excited for it more than I'm nervous about it. Some some fans are going to just be, you know, caught up in the anxious nerves of it and not going to. I'm going to be excited about this game. I cut you off. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, this is the second playoff game in Mahomes' career that he's the underdog. The first one being Super Bowl against the Eagles. Yeah, there you go. Feels good. Yeah. Like, in that Super Bowl against the Eagles, yeah, it was a little bit anxious. It's fun, though. It's like, I like everybody else saying, yeah, there's no way they beat this Philly team, which is dumb to say. In the playoffs, you should never say they're never going to beat that team. At least you can in the wild card round. Like, I didn't think there was any way Pittsburgh was going to beat Buffalo. Yeah. I didn't. When you get the divisional round, there's no more gimmies. I will not be shocked by any upset that happens this week. And it's fun for Chiefs fans. Like you said, only second time in his career, first time before the Super Bowl, you can go in this game and go, we're not expected to win. I want to win. Want to feel good about myself. Want to keep watching this football team, even they, even though they made you so frustrated and infuriated for a long time. This regular season doesn't matter now. Do or die, playoffs on the line, and it's a legacy game. You'll hear me say that 200 more times throughout the show. Legacy games are fun. And they're even more fun when you've already 
put your legacy well ahead of the guy you're facing, and you can stomp on your opponent, on your rival's legacy. They're still trying to build theirs. The Chiefs have built a pretty impressive resume. This can, like, tear up the legacy. They, they can grab the piece of paper and rip it up. That's what they can do on Sunday night. Again, kickoff 5.30 on CBS. Romo and Nance will be on the call for Chiefs and Bills. We'll take our first break of hour number two. When we come back, let's talk some Mizzou hoops. The Tigers, who are right now in the middle of a really brutal stretch, now 8-9, and nine, under five hundred on the season. We'll see where they turn to next, and we're going to talk with our guy, Drew King of PowerMizzou.com. That's next on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. We roll on on the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside producer Kyle Collier. We jump back on the phone line as we talk some Mizzou hoops with Drew King, writer for PowerMizzou.com. Drew, thanks for coming on the show tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm happy to be here. Well, Drew, it has been a really tough stretch for the Tigers of late, really going back to their loss in Lawrence against Kansas. Though in that game, it felt like with the competitive level of play they had, they were close in the first half, made things interesting in the second half. I mean, even Dennis Gates was clapping, going to the handshake line. It felt like this could be a moment where Missouri can really build on it and rattle off a couple of wins in a row, head into SEC play pretty strong. But it's pretty much been the opposite. They've lost every single game uh, since that point, only win coming against Central Arkansas, and now sit under five hundred at 8-9. and nine. Where do you think it's gone wrong? And at this point, is it fixable 17 games in? Yeah, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that Kansas game. You could really kind of say the same thing about every loss this season except for Illinois. Um, the Bragging Rights game was the only one where it was really a disaster from start to finish. But every other game this season, Mizzou's either had a lead or only been a couple possessions behind um, going into the home stretch of every game, right? And so I don't know if that makes it um, better or worse. I know that it makes it more frustrating that this team has shown it's better. Um, it's more ca- It's capable of being better than it's shown so far. Um, and so I think one of the biggest issues with the team right now is um, they can either be good on offense or good on defense, but they really struggle to be good on both ends of the floor on a night-to-night basis. And you don't always know which side of the court it's gonna is gonna be um, the bothersome spot for them. And so, um, like you take uh, the game against Kentucky, for example. Uh, they put up 77 points, which is the most that they've scored in any SEC game so far this season, but they give up 90. Um, and then in the next game, they hold South Carolina to 71 points in an overtime game, right? It's a really slow possession, rock fight, um, but Mizzou only scores 69. So they've just struggled finding a balance through the early part of SEC play here, um, and so that's kind of why they're under 500 at this point. Now, in their last seven losses, as we pointed out, there's been a couple of 90-point showings from their opponent. Four of those games, Seton Hall, Illinois, Kentucky, and Alabama, were all able to score 90-plus points in those games. So where are things breaking down defensively? Is it the lack of the post presence? I mean, Connor Vanover is seven foot five, so it's not a lack of height. Um, I would say they've got physical guard play with Nick Honor and Sean East. Uh, Noah Carter can be a good stretch four, but overall they're just... 
not stopping anybody from scoring. Why so many high-scoring games for their opponents over these last seven losses or so? Yeah, so I, I think for starters, they're they're pretty sorely missing Caleb Grill, who's been out uh, with injury since that Kansas game, since before the Kansas game. Um, he was probably Mizzou's best perimeter defender, um, was very physical, brought an edge on the court. Um, and since he's been out, which is the past uh, eight, eight games here, um, Mizzou's points allowed per game has gone up by 10. I think that they were holding opponents to 69 points per game and since then have been giving up 80 points. So um, they're missing him pretty badly. Um, and then on top of that, you mentioned Connor Vanover, but um, I think that Mizzou's kind of lacking – um, some physicality defensively. You know, they get blocks, they get steals, but they struggle to keep opponents in front of them. Um, and so that kind of opens up driving lanes and kickouts. And, and so that's kind of where you're seeing uh, the defense fall apart with them. We're talking with Drew King, writer for PowerMizzou.com. So they sit there at 8-9 and nine, and now 0-4 in SEC play. I'm sure a lot of Missouri fans are wondering, you know, is this a team that could have some sort of a run to give them a fighting chance to get in the NCAA tournament? Or, Drew, is it pretty much all but wrapped up at this point? You never want to say never because there are still 13, 14 more games to go in the regular season. But sitting here at 8-9, right. it feels like you're only allowed maybe three more losses before the SEC tournament to give yourself a chance. So what pulse do you have on it right now? Yeah, so I, I think that the NCAA tournament is probably out of reach for them at this point. They would have to go on a crazy run in the SEC tournament to get that bid to the big dance. Um, NIT is fading away from them now. Um, at 8-9 and 0-4 and and in conference, um, you're not going to really impress anybody who's putting together a tournament to get an invite to the postseason, right? Um, but like you said, like nothing's impossible. They could string a couple of wins together here. I think the next five games is going to be one of the easier parts of conference play for them. They go up against Florida and Texas A&M in their next two games. Both of those teams are 1-3 and three in conference play so far, so not off to a good start. After that, they play South Carolina, who they just took into overtime and were a couple of free throws short of beating. Um, by the way, Mizzou led South Carolina for the entirety of the second half and somehow lost that game. Um, that's that's a fact about the South Carolina game. So definitely something that they're going to try to turn around in the rematch. Um, after that, they've got Arkansas at home. Arkansas has been pretty underwhelming this season. And then they've got Vanderbilt on the road, who's been the worst team in the conference. So um, if there was ever a time to turn it around, it's coming up right here in the middle of conference play. Now, it does feel like the SEC has some teams this year that are underperforming, Arkansas being maybe the most underperforming team because they had maybe some Final Four expectation coming into the year, and they can be seen as a little bit of a rival to Missouri. So what you've seen from them, of course, they just had a game winner against A&M, but also blew a 19-point lead in this game. Do you see Eric Musselman's bunch turning things around, or is this a team kind of like Missouri where they've already dug themselves too big of a hole? Yeah, so Arkansas is an interesting case. That's a team that typically gets better throughout the year and, and hits their peak in February and March. Um, and so you, you kind of knew that they were going to have um, a, a little bit of an underwhelming record 
through non-conference play because of the schedule that they go up against. They did have the big win at home against Duke, um, but since then they haven't really beaten anyone of significance aside from, like you said, the buzzer beater against Texas A&M. And so um, they they brought in a, a bunch of new fresh uh, transfers. I mean, this season I'm not sure that all of them have clicked as well as they had hoped. Um, but uh, so I, I I kind of view Arkansas as a team that's on the bubble right now. They they could go either way. Uh, looking at the rest of their schedule, we're talking with Drew King, writer for PowerMizzou.com. I know that this year felt like a little bit of a gap year. You've got such a great recruiting class coming in next year. You lost a lot of talent from last year's squad. Was this kind of expected, you know, going 8-9 and nine so far through 17 games, maybe missing the NCAA tournament, or has this really just been an all-around bad year? And even though it was a gap year, Missouri fans still should have expected to go to the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I think that this type of season was on the table, but it, it was kind of one of the more... Um, like a lot of things would have to go wrong to have this kind of season, and they have, right? Um, If you look at Jackson State, Georgia, and South Carolina, Mizzou had a lead on those teams uh, with two minutes left in regulation and lost all three of those. They just couldn't close out against them. And so if you turn those three games around into wins, you're talking about an 11-6 and team instead of an 8-9 and team. And that's not to say that, like, that's a stupendous record that's going to get them to the NCAA tournament, but it's a lot better than 8-9, and nine, right? Um, and I think that they've been dealt a bunch of injuries, and specifically on the wing, right? Caleb Grill's been out. We talked about that. John Tanjay, they just shut down for the remainder of the year. He's not coming back. Um, Dennis Gates said he was their best player this summer um, and, and was just kind of a shell of himself after he had the foot injury in the off season. Um, and then Caleb, Grou- uh, Caleb Brown has been out for most of the year as well. He's not a guy that maybe would have had a huge impact on the year, but he was a guy that they were expecting to play. And so those are three options that Dennis Gates had to throw out on the wing um, that he doesn't have anymore. And so without them, you're talking about Tamar Bates being the only consistent contributor at that position. Behind him, you've got Kurt Lewis, who hasn't played a ton. And if it's not Kurt Lewis, then you're going to have to go to Anthony Robinson, who's really a point guard, or Noah Carter, who's really a power forward. And so it's just been a really tough situation for them to figure out. And I think that's kind of what's hurt them in some of these close losses. Mizzou's coming off a tough loss to Alabama and Tuscaloosa. Just uh, too much offensive firepower from the Crimson Tide for Mizzou to go up against. There was, however, a controversial moment in Nate Oates shoving Aiden Shaw when there was some players jawing back and forth. Drew, when you saw that happen, uh, what were you thinking? Did you think that Nate Oates should have been teed up, ejected from that game? or Should a coach be allowed to shove a player like that? I think I know your answer, but I do want to get your breakdown. Yeah, so I, I don't condone coaches making contact with player like that. I think it should have been a technical foul at the very least, if not a suspension or an ejection. Um, and I was so puzzled that there were two refs in the middle of that scuffle, and both of them just kind of froze. They didn't really do anything about it. Um, and so I, I understand kind of the SEC not wanting to do anything about it after the fact. You know, you can say that maybe he should have been suspended for a game or fined or or whatever, but, you know, it's not going to make too much of a difference. 
Um, he got a public re- reprimand, and it is what it is. But I was disappointed with the SEC that there wasn't more accountability for the refs, right? Because that's who should have stepped up and taken control of the situation, and they didn't. And the SEC, um, at least publicly, like did not have any kind of reprimand for the officials. And so I think that's kind of what I was expecting. I was hoping for at least because there did need to be some type of action there in the moment and there wasn't any. Did you like the way that Dennis Gates handled it? I know in the post game he said that NATO had apologized, but were you hoping for him to have more a fire in his answer or do you think he handled it pretty well in that situation with NATO? Yeah, so when it when it happened at the time, the indication I've gotten is that they, they didn't really see the shove, right? I think that mm-hmm. they would have had a bigger reaction had they seen it happen and so um i think that what dennis gates is most proud of is that aiden shaw showed restraint at that moment and didn't retaliate or react in a negative way because um you know he brought up the the headlines would have looked a lot different if aiden shaw had shoved nate oates back right Mm -hmm. um and so i think that he's mostly just proud that everybody stayed level-headed after that moment and that's kind of what dennis gates preaches right he's he's cool calm and collected at all times and so um i think that that's kind of what his takeaway from the incident was last couple questions for you here drew we really appreciate your time we're speaking with drew king writer for powermazoo.com so since you said you know this team right now probably not going to get the ncaa tournament and the nit uh is still, I guess, a possibility, but kind of a long shot as well. What makes this team enjoyable or watchable down the stretch? How can they make themselves more watchable for Missouri fans that may not get to experience postseason play this year? Yeah, so one thing that you can't take away from this team is that they fight, right? They're in, they're competitive with every single team they go up against. My uh, editor, Gabe DeArmond, has a saying about this team. They tend to play to the level just below their competition, right? So this Alabama game, for instance, they were only down five points with five minutes left, right? They probably should not have lost by 18 points in that game. Uh, but the defense just kind of fell apart in the last five. And so um, it, it, it can be a little bit frustrating to watch, but this team is capable of performing better. Um, they just got to put it together for 40 minutes. And so I think that's kind of what you have to look out for in these next couple of games is, um, can they can they put it all together and finally get over the hump? And once that happens, you know, um, w- how much better can they be after that, right? How, how long can they sustain it? And last question I have for you here, Drew, of course, another reason to keep watching a team is for the guys that may be there next year. Who are a couple of guys mm-hmm. that you feel like can really shine down the stretch here and maybe get more minutes despite being really young? I think probably the most surprising out of the three freshmen have been is, is Anthony Robinson. Um, we didn't expect him to play a ton this year because uh, he was going to be behind Sean East and Nick Honor. Both of them are fifth-year seniors. Um, but because Dennis Gates has put Sean and Nick into the starting lineup, it's opened up uh, a spot in the rotation for Anthony Robinson to step up in. And I think that Ant is already one of the better uh, on-ball defenders in the SEC. He's very pesky with his hands, gets a lot of steals, um, and I think that they're looking for him to develop into a guy who can run the show next year and, and um, 
kind of orchestrate the offense. And so that's kind of some of the things that you're looking for from him moving forward is how much can he uh, contribute on the offensive side of the ball because he's already a really good contributor on defense. Well, Drew, thanks so much for your time as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Anytime, Jack. Thanks so much. There he goes. That's our guy for Mizzou Hoops, Drew King of PowerMizzou.com. Be sure to give him a follow on Twitter. He does a great job over there. That's at DrewKing0222 to get all of your insight on Mizzou Hoops and what you can expect the rest of the way from this Tigers team. They are sub-500 now at 8-9. and nine. They're 0-4 in SEC play, but they will have a chance to get back up on the horse and grab a win this coming Saturday. They will be in Columbia at home against the Florida Gators. Tip-off at 7 p.m. for this game, and they will be on ESPNU. Well, that'll do it for our number two of the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. And when we come back, we'll talk to Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com, getting some insight on the third local team tonight on a K-State team that just continues to win in overtime. They are 10-0 and under Jerome Tang. Massive win against Baylor on Tuesday night, 68-64. to And we'll welcome the Oklahoma State Cowboys on Saturday evening as K-State trying to keep pace at the top half of the Big 12. So Ryan Gilbert makes his return to the show next on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. We begin hour number three of the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside producer Kyle Collier. And for the third time tonight, we jump on the phone line, this time talking some K-State basketball, coming off a monumental win in Manhattan, and once again in overtime to improve Jerome Tang's record at Kansas State, NOT to 10-0. And to get more on that, we talk with Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com. Ryan, first things first, thanks for coming on the show tonight. Thanks for having me on, Jack. It's been a while, and I'm, I'm glad to be back on here with you, man. It has been a while, and we're so glad that we are able to uh, get you in the schedule tonight, and you were gracious enough to use your time tonight to talk some K-State hoops. And first question I have for you here, can you even explain uh, this 10-0 and record for Jerome Tang in overtime? I mean, you feel like at one point the odds are not going to go in your favor, but every time you think that, the Wildcats find a way to come out on the winning side. So your explanation to this 10-0 no start for Tang at Kansas State in overtime. You know, Jack, it really is hard to explain um, this this team's ability, not only this year, but last year as, as well, th- to find a way to win um, in, in these extra five minutes. I guess if you're looking for real X's and O's, like the, the real true answer that we've gotten from Jerome Tang and those players uh, is they go through a drill, I guess, in practice called like five and drive or five for drive and where they, they practice late-game situations like this. And so whatever they're doing in, in practice certainly has worked. But, no, I, I think overall it just, you know, once you've been there and you've done that and you play in these close games, I think, you know, it's sort of a snowball effect that, that sorts to just sort of build. You know, once you win an overtime game, the next overtime game you go into, you know, you're thinking, okay, hey, been here, done that. Um, and K-State's been, you know, very calm in all these overtime games this season. Of course, there is that stretch earlier uh, in late November, early December, where K-State had three in a row, 
all those games went to overtime. And, um, you know, the two of those games were against Oral Roberts and North Alabama. Uh, you just, you know, for as, as awesome as these overtime games have been this season, you know, I, I think to be maybe pessimistic, you would like to see K-State handle business um, in the first 40 minutes of regulation. Obviously, that didn't happen against Texas Tech, uh, where K-State lost by one, let a late lead slip away. That game did not go to overtime. It obviously um, was lost in regulation. So K-State has shown that it can lose some of these close games late. But by and large, Jerome Tang instills a really good um, just confidence, you know, calmness into his team late in overtime games that allows them to win. Now, you look at this team and last year's team, I don't think that this current group has the offensive firepower. They don't have a Marquise Noel or a Keontae Johnson, Desi Sills, Naquan Tomlin. But I almost think this team uh, can at times be a tougher out against opponents because I feel like, really, Ryan, they are so damn good defensively. They made Baylor, who was one of the best three-point shooting teams in the nation, look completely lost beyond the arc. And also handling the ball, I mean, they're forced 40 feet from the goal, having to run their offense that far out. And I feel like, you know, with this team compared to last year, no, they don't have that offensive fireworks show that we all became used to last year. But, man, defensively, they're right up there with the best. Absolutely, man. And you mentioned, first of all, offensively, just obviously they don't have the star power that they had last year. But now you're without Naquan Tomlin and then Quez Glover, who was out for the year with a knee injury. I mean, they were already you know, lacking there a little bit, but those two players being out does not help matters. So that's where you have to win these games is on the defensive end. And Baylor uh, – I think Baylor did miss some open shots. Uh, you know, if that game gets played over a uh, hundred times, Baylor probably comes out more often. You know, more than more than not, because like you said, I believe going into that game, Baylor was number one in the country in three-point field goal percentage. Right? They're you know top, I believe top ten in points per game, uh, margin of victory, as well as overall field goal percentage as well. And so, stopping Baylor was was really impressive, holding a team to sixty-four points including overtime. I mean, that just speaks for itself. K-State, um, since I believe like mid-November, hasn't given up more than 62 points in a game that ended in regulation. Now, obviously, there's a lot of overtime games in there, but uh, the defense really has stepped up, and it's been a huge part for this team's success. We're talking with Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com, talking about this red-hot Kansas State team. Uh, They did slip up uh, against Texas Tech in Lubbock on the road. It's never a bad thing to to lose on the road in the Big 12. They're all tough to come by, whether it's West Virginia or it's beating Kansas in Lawrence. But that specific game, losing to Tech in Lubbock by basically having that game in their grasp in the final minutes. What did you see there in that final stretch that inevitably led to the implosion of this K-State team falling to the Red Raiders? Well, Jack, K-State played very bad to open up that game. Uh, It was an awful start for the Wildcats down in Lubbock. And then obviously K-State you know, caught lightning in a bottle and really – uh, just couldn't miss from beyond the arc. I think Tyler Perry made three three pointers in a row within a few minutes of each other. And so, if you take out the hot stretch that K State had in the middle of that game, you know, early on in the second half, and then to close up the first half, the letdown, um, the, you know, K State letting that game slip away does not come as a surprise. 
Um, I, I think, by and large, K-State didn't play a good game. They had a good stretch in the middle where they played great down in Lubbock. But overall, uh, you know, 18 turnovers. Uh, Jerome Tang's teams have never won a game uh, this season and last season. They've never won a game where they commit more than 18 turnovers. They're now 0-6 in said games. And so you can't value the basketball. You're sloppy with it. It's tough to win games. Um, and, and even on Tuesday, man, they had 17 turnovers. So, you know, K-State, if they just, you know, 12, even 13, 14 turnovers, if K-State plays just a not a, a clean game, but just not as sloppy as it's been, they're going to come out on top in, in some of these games. And so um, K-State, I you know, I don't know if they – I don't think they scored a, a field goal in over, excuse me, the last three minutes of that game in, in regulation down in Lubbock. So that's kind of the, the answer to your question. But um, I, I would say it's less about what K-State did not do um, in the last, you know, five minutes or so in that game, it was K-State didn't play well when you when you take away that middle middle portion of the game. Where are you at with this front court right now? I think we, we've seen some great growth from David Gasson. He's had a couple of games where he's racked up a ton of rebounds. I think Will McNair has shined in some spots. Colbert's given some really good minutes of late. Thought he was uh, really, really good in his last two games. Uh, where do you stand, though, right now with this front court? Because I personally believe... If that group stabilizes, you're already getting your scoring from Tyler Perry, Cam Carter, and, and of course, Arthur Kaluma. But if that front court can really stabilize, then you think about the type of ceiling this Kansas State team has. Absolutely. And, yeah, the, the scoring has come from the guards or, the, you know, the smaller players on the roster. But Will McNair has been a solid anchor down low in the paint for K-State. He hasn't necessarily taken over games like you may want him to, but He's just not there, at least not there yet for Kansas State. And then David Gasson had a, a pretty slow start to the season. And, you know, a lot of fans were, were very frustrated with his play. But he's always been a solid rebounder. And now over the last, I think, six, seven games, the scoring has come as well. His free throw shooting has improved. And so Gasson has been a positive in the paint. And then even mentioned Jerrell Colbert, man. He has been the X factor recently for K-State. I mean, the energy that he provided Bramwich Coliseum on Tuesday against Baylor um, – it was huge. I don't think K-State wins that game without a number of players stepping in off the bench, but Colbert certainly is one of those guys uh, where his efforts cannot go unnoticed. And coming into Big 12 play, there really wasn't much of an expectation for Colbert to do much, if not anything, um, if anything. And so he's really stepped up. Um, he's not going to take over the game. He's not going to do anything like that. But he's, he's a solid rim protector, give you a few points here and there, play good defense and he's he's become a little bit of a difference maker off the bench. Um, I think through the first three games of the season, K-State, I think, had like 18 or 20 bench points combined through those first three games. And K-State finally got that spark against Baylor on Tuesday from its bench to get them over the hump because there's only so much that Perry, Kaluma, and Carter can do. You mentioned that. That's the trio for this team. They are the stars. They are the volume scorers. They're, you know, those are going to be the guys with the balls in, in their hands when it matters most late in the game, right? They can only do so much, and, and Tang is cognizant of this. Uh, you can't have these guys on the court for 38, 39 minutes a game in Big 12 play, especially when you're playing in so many overtime games. That's just going to take such a toll on your body, mentally, physically. You know, you could go, you, you know, you could keep going on and on about why you need to have these guys play about. 33 minutes a game, give or take, right? And Jarrell Colbert is, is a, certainly a guy that can step in. Dorian Finister, R.J. Jones, they showed it against, against Baylor on Tuesday. 
they can be those guys to help you know lead the charge off the bench because K-State's getting a ton of production from his starters. That's what they've gotten all year long. But as far as the bench players go, that's where K-State's going to start to win or lose some of these games. Can those can those guys off the bench? And you know, I didn't even mention Day-Day Ames, who's been sidelined recently with an ankle injury. He's expected to be back on on Saturday against Oklahoma State. Michaela Bridge is a really, really athletic freshman who may be a little bit raw right now, but he still has a high upside. And then even Taj Manning hasn't played much as, as of late, but he started the season opener against USC. So I don't know if you can write anybody off yet on this roster. We're talking some K-State hoops with Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com. Uh, speaking of the guard play, I think a very interesting case is Tyler Perry. I, I believe him to be not only the best free-throw shooter in the Big 12, I think one of the best free-throw shooters in the country, which would lead you to believe that, man, maybe his game plan is, i got to get to the goal, i got to draw contact, because if I get to the line like I did against Baylor you know, 12 times, there's 10, 11 points for me right there. But it feels like in a lot of these games, Ryan, He's living so far from the goal. He's firing up shots in certain situations where it's, I don't feel like you needed it there. And I almost think that maybe Jerome Tang tells him, hey, we can get you 18 or 19 a night if you consistently drive to the goal, draw contact, because, man, you cannot miss at the free throw line. So do you see that style playing, or is Tyler Perry going to be a free shooter wherever he goes? Well, to go back to our point about what went wrong against Texas Tech, I mean, the final possession of that game on Saturday – uh, they did get Tyler Perry going downhill uh, towards the basket. No foul called. It didn't work out. They lost the game. And so in hindsight, it's, it's, it's easy to look back and say, oh, that was a bad call. But, you know, getting him, trying to draw contact, I think that's a good idea. Um, I think maybe you could have gotten something a little bit better schemed up to be critical. But overall, I agree with you. Yeah, you want to get him going downhill. Um, Tyler Perry is when he's taking smart shots, when he's taking the right shots, when he's not forcing things, he's a tremendous three-point shooter. But he's just hovering, he's, he's hovering over 30% on the year. That's, I mean, he's making less than one out of every three shots from, a, from beyond the arc this season. That's not going to cut it. Now, he's a really good shooter. Uh, I think part of it's mental as well. Um, I think he's in his own head a little bit, to be quite honest with you, Jack, but he's not taking the right shots. Uh, this season, and it, and that needs to get better. I mean, it go you go back to Marquise Noel last year, like, he had a flair for the dramatic, but he also took a shot or two a game where you're just left kind of scratching your head, like, you know, <laughs> what in the world was that? Mm-hmm. But, you know, Perry, um, you know, he, I don't know if he's a, really a true point guard. He's never been a point guard coming into this season with Kansas State. He was always more of a two. Um, back at North Texas, Coffeyville Community College, he was never really asked to facilitate an offense, lead an offense, find open teammates. And so I think he's juggling a lot. A lot is on his plate. And as a point guard, and this is true for any sport, um, you know, it, it, people always talk about sports, you know, it's a game of inches. Well, in my mind, it's a game of like split seconds. Like, like for Tyler Perry, if you take that split second to decide if you're going to shoot that ball or not, the defenders already closed that gap on you you're not getting a good look. And then at that point, you're forcing out your shot. You're rushing to get it out quickly so it doesn't get blocked, right? Tyler Perry, I think, might might be thinking too much about what he's doing right now. And so, uh, again, this staff is cognizant. They are aware. They've mentioned it. Um, but, I, you know, it, it's interesting, man. Um, Tyler Perry was asked after that Baylor game about his three-point struggles, and he gave a you know an answer, a generic response, 
And then Arthur Kaluma, who was also on the podium, jumped in. Um, nobody asked, you know, nobody asked him to answer it, but he jumped in and he had his teammates back. He said, you know, TP is the, uh, I see the work that he puts in in the gym and went on and on and on about, about how much trust he has in him as a player to lead that offense. And so it, there's no question, Jack, we have heard it time and again that in, in practice, Tyler Perry is like the best three point shooter in America. Yeah. Um, he's, you know, shooter, you know, three point shooter, free throw shooter, you name it. We've heard it, and so it's, it's it's really just a matter of taking those smarter shots, being more poised on the court. Uh, you look at that Baylor game on Tuesday, he only made one three-pointer, and that was one where he ran up the court in transition and chucked up a three-ball. If it doesn't go in, you're beyond frustrated. But, it, you know, it went in, you know, good shot. You know, round of applause for that one for going in. If, if you're a coach, you know, it's one of those where you're saying, oh, no, 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 good shot, right? Um I think that you need to get him smarter shots. And then also also Arthur Kaluma, he's up near 40%. You need to get him uh, to continue to take more looks from beyond the arc. Tyler Perry has taken over two times more attempts from deep than Kaluma. So I'm not saying that Kaluma just needs to start chucking up prayers like Perry's been doing, but get him more looks. And that's probably more on the coaching staff to scheme up ways to get him more involved from beyond the arc. I'm glad you bring up Kaluma because not only was he the hero on Tuesday night against Baylor. I mean, it was a shot that I feel like Kaluma can take a little bit more. I love how you brought up the three-point percentage. I mean, this is a guy that in his career, going back to Creighton, he could shoot it from deep. And I think this year, you know, he's so physical as well. He likes to go downhill. He likes to get to the free throw line. But, man, I think that part of his game is what really can open up K-State's offense. And we've seen, you know, in blowout wins against UCF uh, and their comfortable win against West Virginia, when the three-point shots are falling, especially from Cam Carter, Perry, and Kaluma. Man, I mean, they could be a team that can put anywhere from 80 to 90 points in conference play, which is so hard to do. So sounds like what you're saying here is that it's more on the coaching staff here to get Kaluma that looks more than Kaluma just firing them up. Um, so Kaluma's a his, – his shot is slow. He has a slower release. Mm-hmm. So that's not, that's not a knock on him. That's just kind of a fact. He has one of the more slower releases of anyone on K-State. And so maybe that's why he's not getting – um, a ton of looks, but Arthur Kaluma, if you've watched K-State play, he's got a deadly pump fake. And so now that he's starting to make more and more three-pointers, um, if you're if you're a, an opposing defense, if he starts to make those three-pointers, it's, it's going to be tough to defend because obviously you got to guard that, and Kaluma can bring out that pump fake again that he's shown early on in the year. Um, and then you drive to the basket, you draw a double team. Well, you go up to the basket, you get fouled, or you kick it out to somebody who's going to be open. Uh, when you are double teamed, so I think the it's it's pretty it, it's kind of there like there you know Kaluma get him the ball and good things are going to happen either you're going to give him an open look from beyond the arc or you're going to try to guard him overcompensate and somebody else is going to be open right so Kaluma's got to become more of a volume guy I've outlined this on Go Power Cat recently um, you know the gap on how many three pointers Kaluma takes compared to how many three pointers Tyler Perry takes that gap needs to continue to shrink as we move through the thick of Big 12 play. Um, I'm not going to say that Cam Carter or, you know, any uh, R.J. Jones had the big three-pointer in overtime to give Arthur Kaluma a chance for that go-ahead three-pointer, right? Like, Kaluma stole the show, but R.J. Jones, a true freshman who hasn't played much in Big 12 play, stepped in and hit a huge three-ball um, to, to put K-State back within two points to allow Kaluma to have that opportunity to hit that game winner. And so 
Dorian Finister, he's been, you know, a guy that's been talked about as maybe being an X factor in Big 12 play. Um, he's going to have to start kicking things up a notch in terms of um, shooting it from the perimeter. So, I, I, to be honest, Jack, I think it's, you know, Tyler Perry just needs to take smarter shots and then let everybody else uh, continue to, to get better looks from beyond the arc. And you admire what Perry's trying to do. He's aggressive and he plays without fear. That's awesome. Um, but, you know, especially with some of these, I guess, heat checks that he's had lately, you want to be taking smart shots in Big 12 play because in my, in my, in my mind, in my eyes, you know, chucking up a prayer late in the shot clock when you don't have any sort of offense going is pretty much the same thing as a turnover. It's a very low percentage shot that's more often than not going to end in zero points. And last question for you here, Ryan. We really do appreciate your time. It's a long ways out. We still got another month and a half before we hit March. But where things stand with the Kansas State Wildcats, where do you roughly see them being seated in the NCAA tournament? I would say, Jack, with the way things are trending over these last four games to start Big 12 play, I think K-State could end up on you know a sixth seed if things go well, if K-State wins these close games and, and starts to value the basketball more. K-State can easily finish in the top half of the Big 12, but that's also kind of the recency bias kicking in with that answer. Overall on the year, K-State had a rather underwhelming non-conference slate that they performed in. Um, but I don't know if Jerome Tang and his staff really want their team to be clicking until until honestly March, right? When, when you're in March Madness, that's when you want to get hot. But really until Big 12 play began uh, just a few weeks ago. And so with the way things are going, K-State, I would say an 8-9 seed is probably where they'll end up. Um, certainly with a 3-1 and one start, you've already stolen one on the road, and your one road loss was only by a single point. Things are looking good for K-State. And uh, Jerome Tang was asked right before Big 12 play started, what's it going to take? to make the NCAA tournament. And I think whoever asked that question was kind of going for a, you know, limit turnovers, do this, do that. And all Jerome Tank said was win eight games. Or I think he said eight or nine. But um, And that kind of just told us that the expectation for this team was to, to try to sneak into the NCAA tournament, maybe win a game, and that would be a successful season. And reading between the lines, that's kind of what, kind of what I think Jerome Tank was saying. Just win enough games to get into the NCAA tournament and see what happens. And now there's been a real sense of confidence in this team, especially after that Baylor win on Tuesday, that that ceiling has raised up a little bit. And they believe that they can, I'm not saying compete for the Big 12, you know, KU, Houston, there's way too many good teams in the top of the standings um, to really compete with. But, you know, why not finish fifth in the Big 12, um, make some noise in the Big 12 tournament in Kansas City, and go out and have some real momentum heading into the March Madness. I think over these last four games, K-State's, uh, K-State's proven that they can compete, and the locker room is really starting to buy in. I mentioned R.J. Jones and, and Jarrell Colbert um, being guys that need to be X-factors for this team moving forward. Both of those guys have been on scout team in practice over the last month, and that's unheard of for, you know, for a scholarship player who's healthy um, to be on scout team. And so – They've got a locker room of, of guys that really care and have bought in to not about, you know, what can I do for my NBA draft stock or my points per game numbers? What can I do to help this team win? K-State has a really good locker room right now, right now. Ryan, thanks so much for your time as always, and we'll talk to you next week.
Yep, appreciate it, Jack. Take care. There he goes. That's our guy for K-State Hoops, Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com. Be sure to give him a follow on Twitter or X, wherever you like to use. Well, it's the same thing, but wherever you like to call it, I should say. And that's at GPC Ryan G on X or Twitter. Again, whatever you like to call it for all of your K-State information. Cats will be in action on Saturday against the Oklahoma State Cowboys. All right, we're going to take our first break of hour number three. When we come back, we're going to make all of our picks for the NFL Divisional Round Weekend. That'll begin on Saturday afternoon. That's next on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Final 30 minutes of the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I am your host, Jack Johnson, alongside producer Kyle Collier. It is time to break down every single game in the NFL Divisional Round Weekend. Many would argue the best weekend of the NFL season, maybe other than opening week. There's not going to be many games to pick from, right? Just two apiece on the AFC and the NFC side. And it's going to begin at MNT Bank Stadium in Baltimore, Saturday afternoon, 3.30 kickoff between the young, upstart Houston Texans and the number one seed in the AFC, the Baltimore Ravens, who are a nine-and-a-half point favorite, the total at 43-and-a-half. Wanted to bring up this stat, and this is from our good buddy Joel Penfield of the KC Sports Network and co-host of One Royal Way. He sent me this, and I want to make sure I credit him properly. This is the stat that Joel dug up. It's from Nick Wright's podcast. Of course, Nick Wright, formerly based here in Kansas City. And Lamar Jackson, we all know, has not been a very good uh, postseason quarterback. That's just the way it's been. He's only got one playoff win, and that was to Ryan Tannehill and the Tennessee Titans. So here is what Joel sent me. Lamar is 1-6 against the spread. Off of extended rest. He is also 1-8 against the spread as more than a touchdown favorite. As I said, the spread is 9.5 in favor of the Baltimore Ravens. By those numbers alone, I got to feel like this game is going to be close. I don't feel great about it because it is a rookie quarterback, a rookie head coach, and a team that is playing with house money. That that can work in your favor. And I would say that the argument of, well, Houston's been bad forever, they're such a young team, I don't think they really think of themselves as a bad football team. Like A lot of them are rookies. A lot of them are new. Like This is our first year in the league, and they've won 11 games. They already have a playoff win. They won by 30-plus points in their first playoff game. That's just wildly impressive. And Lamar... He's got an uphill battle. Even though he's going to be the MVP this year, he'll have two MVPs to his name. Postseason success is not one of his great accolades. Not one of his great you know, attributes to his game. And a lot of quarterbacks do struggle in the postseason, but Lamar, he's, he may struggle more than any of the great quarterbacks. More than Allen, more than Burrow, more than Mahomes. I think by those numbers sent to me by the great Joel Penfield, 
I'm going to go with Houston, plus nine and a half here. I don't feel great about it. Those numbers, though, right there. Lamar, one and six against the spread off extended rest. One and eight against the spread as more than a touchdown favorite. Kyle, your thoughts? Well, Joel, he's really messing up my take here. I was going to bring up how Baltimore has extended rest. They're going to be healthy. But, man, I still think Baltimore's too strong. They've got a defense uh, unlike defenses Lamar has also had in the past. We've been talking about Mahomes and the defense he's never had before. Mm -hmm. Baltimore's defense has been scary this year. Then last week, I did pick Cleveland over Houston. C.J. Stroud made me look silly. He could make me look silly again this week. I just think Baltimore has too much. And they've got Mark Andrews back this week, too. They do. Practicing in full. They do. I still think Baltimore's too too much for, for Houston uh, in the playoffs, in this in, in this upcoming matchup. Give me the Ravens. I do support the close game theory, though. I don't think Baltimore wins by double digits. I just, it's wild to me that stats like that exist. Like, you would just think, man, Baltimore, Mark Andrews back, Lamar Jackson one seed, rookie quarterback, rookie head coach going against them in their own house. No-brainer, right? And then you just have these weird numbers. Great numbers, but weird numbers like Lamar can't cover the spread when it's more than double digits. This one's right on the cusp of it, nine and a half. And he's also not good against the spread coming off extended rest, which he's had. They had the first round bye. will be very interesting to see how this game plays out. Again, Ravens-Texans, 3.30 kickoff on ESPN. Baltimore, nine and a half point favorite. Total at 43 and a half. The nightcap on Saturday, the San Francisco 49ers, 12 and 5 going into this game against the underdog Green Bay Packers. Defied all odds this year, moved on from Aaron Rodgers, and got a better quarterback in the process. Not long-term, of course. We, we don't know what Jordan Love's going to be long-term. I mean, Aaron Rodgers is going to be a Hall of Famer. But in terms of what Rodgers looked like last year and what Jordan Love looks like this year, yeah, that's an upgrade at the quarterback position. And they nearly 50-burgered the Dallas Cowboys, who decided the day to retain Mike McCarthy, I've got thoughts on that, but we won't have time for it tonight. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But nearly 50-burgering Dallas and that defense in their own stadium. I know the stigma for the Dallas Cowboys in the playoffs. That was maybe the most impressive win all weekend long from anybody. And now they get a tall task in the top dog, the alpha. And the San Francisco 49ers, once again, a a 9.5 point spread, the total at 50 and a half. Whew. I'm not as confident in Brock Purdy as I once was. I'm not as confident in Kyle Shanahan's system as I once was because I really do feel like this could be a shootout. This could be a fun shootout uh, considering Green Bay at this point has a lot of momentum. And the Niners, they could be a little bit rusty to begin this game. Here is the kicker for me, though. The Packers have a bad, bad, bad run defense. Just terrible. And who does San Francisco have? Christian McCaffrey. Averaging 92 yards a game on the ground. His uh, over-under, I believe, is set at 91, by the way. Uh, Whatever you want to take there. Here's another stat that was pointed out to me. I don't have it in front of me, but I remember Jake Gutierrez, producer of the Border Patrol, pointed pointed this out to me this morning. I think going back to 2005, only one time has both one seeds covered in the divisional round. And this is kind of a a weird 
weird postseason where both one seeds are nearly double-digit favorites. So if I think that the Texans are going to keep things close, and by the way, I'm messaging Joel right now. Give a shout-out to Joel. He's got Houston outright. He's got Houston going to the AFC title game. How about that? If Houston pulls this off, next time he's on our show. <laughs> oh, he's I'm he's gets his own segment. I'll shut the hell up and Joel can talk for 30 minutes. He's also, I want to throw his picks in there so he can be a part of this. He's got Packers plus 10. So not only Texans outright, he's got Packers plus 10 covering in San Fran. I think I'm going to go with those numbers, that stat of the, the number one seeds, the cover. You know, not both. Well, since I've got one number one seed not covering, I think the other will. I think this game will be close early on, but, man, the run defense of the Packers concerns me. I think the Niners are going to try to control that line of scrimmage from the get-go, run the hell out of the ball with McCaffrey. I got the Niners covering that nine-and-a-half-point spread. Joel has the Packers covering the big spread. What say you, Kyle? I'm with you, Jack. Give me the Niners covering that nine-and-a-half. I think they can beat the Packers by double digits. Mm. Uh, Again, I'm going to go with the extended rest theory I've got going here. The Niners have had two weeks to get healthy now. And while I I agree with you, I'm not exactly all in on Brock Brock Purdy the way Uh he was cooking earlier this season, but he's just got an insane bunch of playmakers around him. Ayuk, Samuel, George Kittle, not to mention Christian McCaffrey. And San Francisco's defense. They, uh, Dallas excelled, really, at turning the ball over, mm-hmm. really. San Francisco, <laughs> they don't let you do anything. They'll really. just beat you up. Yeah, exactly. And so I just think San Francisco, I think they're too dominant. And I also think, too, like, Dallas is really good at beating bad teams. Yeah. San Francisco is good at beating anybody. Yeah. That, that's where I'm at with it. This is a different team, different identity. That's why I'm rolling with the Niners. Okay, next up is the first Sunday game, and... I'm hoping for a lot of you out there. This is unprecedented territory. A lot of Chiefs fans are going to be watching at bars. Maybe you're having house watch parties. Nobody's probably going to the game that you know, unless you got somebody with a lot of money and they can make that trip up to Buffalo in that snowstorm that's going to be up there. So bars are going to be packed. Should be a lot of fun. I know a lot of people are going to get there early, which you'll fortunately be able to watch the Tampa Bay Buccaneers take on... I'll probably say it, America's team and in the Detroit Lions. Everybody and their mom is rooting for the Detroit Lions because of their history. Three decades of misery. They get an emotional win over Matt Stafford and the Rams in the NFC wildcard round. And now they get an underdog, the NFC South champ, but a massive underdog. Another big spread in this game. It's Baker and the Bucks against Jared Goff and the Lions. Six and a half in favor of Detroit. Joel, by the way, has the Bucks plus six and a half. So he's got a lot of upsets happening. He's telling me it's an underdog weekend, baby. Underdog weekend. And you know what? We deserve it. He's picked all underdogs. So it, it, far. it was boring. <laughs> it was boring in the wild card round. They're all it was like chalk. Nothing was that exciting. A lot of blowouts. That we are due for some upsets to happen. If that Houston upset happens, man, I'm I'm getting Joel a t shirt that he he can have this show if he wants. Because that is one hell of a pick. And I don't know. Like I said with Allen, not being able to recover if he loses to the the Chiefs, I do not know how Lamar recovers losing this game. I really do not. He could just be that quarterback that wins MVPs, never wins in the playoffs. And that'll start being factored in, I feel like, for MVP awards. If he's kind of neck and neck with somebody and that guy goes further in the playoffs, different story. This year, 
Lamar's got it in a landslide. I don't see anybody else getting the MVP award. I just don't know if I can go with the dog here, man. I, I'm, I'm not liking these spreads, to be honest with you. Like, they're too tempting one way or the other. I don't feel confident, really. I love Baker Mayfield. I loved watching that Bucks offense against Philly. I also think, though, it was because that Philly defense was so damn bad. It's the worst defense of any of the postseason teams. It, tackling, awful. Pass rush, awful. Secondary, awful. Linebacking core, awful. And that made life very easy for Baker Mayfield. It's a different defense. It's a faster, more athletic defense. They'll light you up. And I think it's going to be a lot more difficult for Baker Mayfield to move the ball the way they did against Philly's defense. I also just need to sound it out. See, this is the unfortunate part of it. I'm sounding out both these things, and you tell me which sounds less likely. The Detroit Lions in the NFC Championship game or Baker Mayfield in the NFC Championship game. Which sounds more ludicrous? I don't know. I really don't. I feel like i got to go with the team of destiny here. I'm not a huge believer in that BS. If it's our team of the destiny, they might as well win. Because I stomped on the Hollywood script of, oh, well, if team deserves to win it, they should. Yeah, I think Detroit deserves to win, considering they've been through three decades of atrocious football. I don't know, though. If, I wish this was 10, because then I would take the Bucks plus 10. I think the Lions can win by a touchdown. I just don't see Tampa Bay scoring more than 20 in this game. I could see it being like 27 to 17. So give me the Lions at home. I got them in the NFC title game going up against the San Francisco 49ers. I'm with you 100%. I think uh, the Lions defense, they, they need to get after Baker Mayfield. The Bucks don't run the ball very well. And like you mentioned, the Lions defense, much more athletic. They've got a great defensive line. And on the offensive side, Tampa Bay, they like to blitz a lot. I, I I still don't think it matters much. The Lions can beat you with the run. They can beat you with the pass. Team of Destiny, I also don't believe in it too much. The only Team of Destiny I ever really believed in was the 2015 Kansas City Royals. Mm-hmm. I think the Lions get this done. Lions get it done? Yeah. And by the way, I hope I didn't lead anybody astray. Joldis had... Bucks plus six and a half. He doesn't have an outright. He's got Houston outright. He's got the Packers covering. He's got the Bucks covering. Lions winning. We both have right. We both have the Lions winning and covering. Joel taking that dog, man. It is a dog weekend for Joel Penfield. And the last game, the granddaddy of them all here in Kansas City. Whether you're on the Kansas or the Missouri side, Chiefs and Bills. Five thirty kickoff on CBS. Round three in the playoffs between Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. (sighs) This is just impossible to pick. And it's impossible to not have your heart into this. I think Buffalo fans would have the same take as Chiefs fans do right now. The logic in me would say, well, the Chiefs are on the road. They're an underdog. This offense hasn't been great. They're averaging 21 points a game over their last 11. I don't think they should win. Uh, That should be the the simple point here. But after seeing them last week against Miami, knowing their championship pedigree, damn is it hard to pick against them. Damn is it hard to pick against Patrick Mahomes in games against Josh Allen in January. I do not think they struggle as much as people think on the road here. 
Buffalo is depleted defensively. The Chiefs didn't have Pacheco or Drew Tranquil in the first game in the regular season. I think you have to factor that stuff in. I sound a little bit hypocritical because I said last week that I take away everything in the post or in the regular season when looking at the postseason. I don't care about what the matchup looked like. I didn't really factor in the Germany game for the Chiefs and the Dolphins. I just feel like though with injuries, if you didn't have a guy in that game, it does factor in. The Chiefs had Clyde Edwards Hilaire who didn't play poorly against Buffalo. He's just not Isaiah Pacheco. This is gonna be one hell of a football game, and I can keep it as PG as possible. I'm going to be at a bar watching this game. Big Chiefs watch party. I'm sure everybody else is. Place is going to be juiced at Highmark Stadium. But that juice is going to run out. I think Patrick Mahomes gets it done for a third consecutive time over Josh Allen and the Bills. Puts a fork. An absolute fork. A pitchfork into the Bills franchise. Chiefs move on to the AFC title game. And in my opinion, they're going to go to Baltimore. Kyle, your thoughts, and then I'll say what Joel's got. Okay. I'm with you 100% all the way. I think this is a type of game. Patrick Mahomes going on the road for the first time in the NFL playoffs. This is the type of challenge you know, he's salivating at. He wants to do this. He wants to end. You know, he wins this game. Sean McDermott's gone. Josh Allen mm. Josh Allen will stay, but I think the rest of the roster, you got to start doing something else, either that or the coaching staff if they drop this game to Kansas City. Now, there's been a lot of talk about the elements, especially last week with the Chiefs against uh, Miami. We saw how Mahomes was. He didn't force anything. His deep balls looked good, even though they weren't caught. I, I really, and you've mentioned the defense already. They're his own heavy team, and I think the Chiefs can eat that up. Give me the Chiefs to win. Well, shocker, shocker. Joel Penfield's going with the dog in this. And he's got the Kansas City Chiefs outright. Which, for him, would set up the Arrowhead Invitational for the sixth consecutive year. (laughs) Chiefs and Texans, Mahomes and Stroud, instead of Mahomes and Jackson. You and I, we've got Lamar and Mahomes battling it out in M&T Bank Stadium next weekend. Should be a lot of fun. I know that everybody can't wait. Like, it's Thursday night. I'm glad, actually, now that we had the show on Thursday night and not Tuesday because I already want it to be Sunday night. I usually don't do that with my weekends, but I, I can't wait. Man, I, this this is just one of those games where you remember. One more from here. We got an actual prediction from Joel. Joel's got the Chiefs by 10. Chiefs 27, Bills 17. Mahomes rips the soul out of the Bills franchise. Allen has two gut-wrenching turnovers. And it's fitting. Right now, don't know if you're seeing my TV, NFL Network, they're playing the Chiefs-Bills divisional game at Arrowhead Stadium, the 13-second game. Right now, eight seconds left. Mahomes is about to hit Kelsey (laughs) over the middle. Butker's going to have the game-tying field goal, setting up overtime, which the Bills eventually got the rules changed in the NFL. But Mahomes here in about 10 to 15 minutes is going to hit Travis Kelsey on a beautiful back shoulder throw. There's the throw to Kelsey. Set him up at the 31-yard line. I can't believe in two plays they went from the 25 to the Bills 31. An absolute disaster class by Sean McDermott. But what's new? What's new? There's been a lot of moments late in games where Sean McDermott is, has struggled to make the right call, and that's one that lives in Bills' infamy 
forever. Well, that's been likely our final running the spread segment for a while, at least, probably till next year, because we're not going to run the spread. We'll break down the games. We're not going to run the spread, though, for two games next weekend. But we are going to take our final break of the show. When we come back, some quick thoughts on Rodney Terry calling UCF classless for doing a harmless hand gesture. That's next on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Final five minutes of the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I've been your host, Jack Johnson, alongside producer Kyle Collier. Last little bit of sports news I want to dive into tonight involves Rodney Terry, head coach of the Texas Longhorns, who made himself look like a fool, to put it politely. And the team's 77-71 loss last night to the UCF Golden Knights. Now, this game took place in Austin, and after the game, in the handshake line, some of the UCF players were a little bit late getting into the handshake line because they were celebrating on the floor and giving the horns down symbol to the crowd. For the most part, that would be shrugged off. You know, fans are going to be irritated, some irate. They're going to say some things to the players, and that would be the max extent of it. Though it did not sit well with Rodney Terry at all. You know, he is in the player's face saying that's classless, that's classless, don't do that S-H-I-T. You know, we can't curse over the air as much as we'd like to. Wish we could play the clip of audio, but again, we can't do that as well because they don't have a censored version just yet. But he's doing that to UCF players, and I'm just thinking to myself, it's not right for an opposing coach to tell another team how to act. You let that be decided. You let that be handled by that team's coach, which is Johnny Dawkins. Now, Johnny Dawkins addressed it in the post game. You know, he said him and Rodney Terry go way back, and if it's something I need to address, then I will address it. And I thought that was a very nice way of putting it, but Rodney Terry was out of line here. You can be upset about the horns down symbol. You know, and then Rodney Terry kind of goes on a a victory parade of some sorts, even though they lost, but saying, oh, we don't do that here. I tell my players not to celebrate like it's the national championship. We don't jump up and down. We tip our cap. We shake their hand. It's like, okay, I I pat yourself on the back for that. UCF's also in a different situation. UCF is brand new to the Big 12. They had a massive win against Kansas and Orlando. Then they go to Texas one of the biggest brands in college, and beat you on the road. Now, is it right to celebrate by interacting with the crowd? Not all the time. I think there's a lot worse things you could do. Flipping off children, that probably wouldn't be very good. That would be classless to me. I just have never understood, and I'm not a Texas fan. Maybe Texas fans just feel completely different about this. I've never understood why it is such a big deal. Like, to an extent where the NCAA stepped in and they now flag players for doing that. Like, that is the definition of soft to me. Now, for Texas fans, I get it. Now, I may not completely understand it, but I get it. That that irritates you. Your school is being mocked and made fun of. Like, that is irritating to you. That's frustrating to you. You know how you stop it? You win. 
You don't let UCF beat you on your home floor? But it all goes back to the point where I just think, if you are an opposing coach, you can be pissed off, you can be mad. I would have just maybe pulled Johnny Dawkins in a little closer and said, hey, that's that's classless, man. Leave it at that. Don't need to make a big scene about it. I mean, Rodney Terry's going down the line telling every player, that's classless, that's classless, don't do that. Not your right to do that. Not your place. That's my take. And let's all be honest, if you've watched SEC football or basketball, it's a hell of a lot worse than that. Things that are said from fans, ooh, yeah, I don't know how long Rodney Terry's going to last if that really offends him. I get you've got pride. I get that you have this feeling of of protection over something sacred. Uh, but even our very own Jason Anderson earlier today, a screenshot of the picture from Texas' big win in Manhattan last year, and there you have Tyrese Hunter giving the horns up. The hook'em horns to the K-State student section. So there's no double standard then. So you can go horns up if you have a big win, but horns down, which, again, I just I don't see how it's that offensive. Irritating, sure, if you're a Texas fan. <laughs> but the fact the NCAA had to step in and they're like, that's egregious. We got to penalize players for doing that gesture. Middle finger, sure, that can be classless. Funny, but classless. This, I just felt like, you know, Rodney Terry's more so losing his cool because the team lost. Kyle, any thoughts on this before we say goodbye and good night for the evening? No, I just I just pose a hypothetical situation. What if Texas was at UCF and UCF stormed the court? What would he say then? Is that more classless? Or uh, I don't classless? know. Yeah, uh, Clearly, he's in the no-fun zone. Exactly. No-fun zone at all. I've always been in the belief, any sport, if you win... I'm sorry. You've got a right to act however you want to. If it's classless, hey, you can be punished for it later. UCF won. Texas didn't. Let's grow up a little bit. Let's not tell other players how to act. Let that be the other coach's problem. Worry about winning some basketball games. That's going to do it for the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I've been your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Kyle Collier. Big thank you to all of our college hoops guys tonight. Braden Turner of the Ain't No Seeds podcast, Drew King of PowerMizzou.com, and Ryan Gilbert of GoPowerCat.com. If you missed any of our show, just check us out on the podcast page on Sports Radio 810 WHB. But until next week, you take it easy, Kansas City.